If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. You just found the most downloaded fitness, health, and entertainment podcast. This is Mind Pump. Today's episode is a special one. We got Jordan Peterson on the show. He's had a profound impact on all of us here at Mind Pump. And we finally got him on the show, got to sit down and have an excellent conversation. Now, he blew up all over the scene uh, on social media, on YouTube. His book, 12 Rules for Life, sold millions of copies. Um, He advises people on how to live better lives. He's very outspoken, very, very intelligent. Um, He's a great person. People absolutely love the guy. So do we. So we know you're going to love this episode. Now, Cyber Monday is today. We have a huge sale on all MAPS programs. So before we get to the interview, go check them out because all MAPS programs are 60% off. All MAPS bundles are 60% off. You can find those at mapsfitnessproducts.com, but you have to use the code Cyber Monday. This episode is also brought to you by a sponsor, Dr. Stephen Cabral and his functional medicine team right now are offering uh, our listeners 50% off the stress, mood, and metabolism at home lab test. So you got half off. That also includes a health coaching call. So you get 50% off that. If you're interested, go to stephencabral.com. Stephen is S-T-E-P-H-E-N and then C-A-B-R-A-L.com forward slash mind pump. All right, here comes Jordan Peterson and mind pump. Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolute hey, honor. I'm, I'm happy to be here so, in warm Arizona. Yeah, so we <laughs> got, we you you invited us to the ARC event, which was uh, a massive honor, um, and it was incredible. We didn't know quite what to expect. We knew the, you know, what we had watched your video on why you had created it, but listening to the talks, um, they were so impactful. I would like for you to explain a little bit of why did you create this? What was What's the goal and the reason behind uh, the organization, and what's the future goals uh, of doing this? Well, the fundamental goal is to help people understand that we need to confront the future with faith and courage and optimism, not because they're, because we're naive about problems, because that's foolish, but because the way that you turn the future into the best place that it can be is to face, face it with faith and courage, optimistically, you know, and... and Young people have been fed two pathological stories for about 60 years. And one is a hedonistic story, which is the idea that it's really all about you, but in the narrowest sense of you, is that you should be, you should define yourself, you should pursue your pleasure wherever it takes you. The libertarians tilt in this direction a little bit. Um, It's one of the flaws of Ayn Rand's philosophy that we all define ourselves and that society emerges properly out of the harmonious balance of narrow self-interest. And Mm. the problem with that is that people confuse their narrow self-interest with hedonic desire. And that's a big mistake. You're not just your bloody whims. And if you pursue your whims, first of all, you're immature because that's literally the definition of immaturity is to pursue what you want right now and damn the consequences. And then the other story that young people have been forced, I would say, to swallow is that the future is going to be an apocalyptic nightmare, and that's a consequence of the evil, power-mad pathology of human beings, and that the best we can do is, you know, limit ourselves in all directions and try not to scar the surface of Mother Earth. It's like, it's so pathological. And what we would like to suggest to people instead is that if human beings 
sort their identity out properly, which means to accept responsibility for themselves and then in step more and more people across a broader and broader time span that we can organize our society so that we can literally make the desert bloom. There's no necessary intrinsic limit to abundance and opportunity. And it depends on how people organize themselves. So I was just, I'm writing a new book called We Who Wrestle With God. And I was writing a section this week looking at something called the curse of natural resources. So we have this idea in our culture that's a materialist and an atheist idea at, and even a Marxist idea at core that there is such a thing as natural resources. There's, so there's just the wealth of the earth and it's laying around waiting to be picked up. And then the people who pick it up and, and hoard it are the evil capitalists and you know they're oppressing everyone else. And every bit of that's a lie. There's no relationship between the amount of natural resources that a country has and its wealth. Like literally no relationship. In fact, there might even be a slight negative relationship. It's called the curse of natural resources in that if wealth is lying around in the form of fossil fuels, for example, abundant fossil fuels, the countries tend to become extremely corrupt and greedy. And, you know, a small number of people do take the wealth as a consequence of the resources and there's no economic development. And then there are other countries like Japan. Japan has no natural resources to speak of. Yet it's extremely rich, and the reason for that is that Japan is a very disciplined, conscientious economy and people. The Japanese are are that way, and they can trade with each other without, without complication. It's part of the reason the U.S. is so rich. Like the default economic transaction in the United States is honest. If people are honest and they organize themselves responsibly, there's absolutely nothing they can't do. And so... We're trying to put forward a, a, a notion of identity that is technically, it's, it's a subsidiary identity. It's predicated on the idea that you're not in your head. You're not subjectively defined. You exist in relationship to other people necessarily. Like you have to take care of yourself and that's an integrative act because mm-hmm. you have to get your whims under control. You have to treat yourself responsibly and well over the long run, not only in the moment. And then if you're mature enough to do that, maybe you can join with someone else, wife or husband optimally for a long-term relationship and you can build something out of that. And then that's part of your identity. It's not subjective. Like your, your relationship with your wife is not subjective right? It's negotiated. And then if you can manage that properly, well, then maybe you can have a family and you can extend yourself out into your community. And that gives you identity at multiple levels of, of what inclusion, that's a good way of thinking about it, something the lefties might be happy about. And <laughs> as you get better and better at that, you can bring more people together across longer and longer spans of time. And if you do that properly, then there's no limit to abundance. Now, there's a biblical narrative that describes the subsidiary structure. It emerges in the story of Exodus, and Moses is presented with the idea of subsidiary structure as an alternative to tyranny and slavery. So you imagine that if it's just about you, and you're not responsible, you're just pursuing your hedonistic whims, you know, you're like a two-year-old, and a room full of two-year-olds needs a ruler, and a, 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 a state full of immature individuals needs a tyrant. Mm. And so, what happens if everyone becomes hedonic, hedonistically oriented, then you need a tyrant to control them. And the alternative to that is to, t- is to build a structure of governance at, at all these multiple levels of social interaction where, where 
every level takes responsibility for what's appropriate to it. And then you don't need, you don't even need a government technically, or that is the government that actually becomes the proper government. Yeah, if I, let me interrupt you for yeah. a second, Rick. I'm going to back you up here. Yeah. Um, I, years ago, I watched uh, Free to Choose. Uh, this was a Milton Friedman documentary done in the late seventies. And he used the example of Hong Kong. Yeah. Hong Kong was a third world country and very, very rapidly became extremely wealthy and yeah. they have almost no resources. All yeah. they have is a, a port essentially. Right. And they freed up their markets and used, uh, allowed people to trade freely and became extremely wealthy. And then to back up your other point about our hedonistic uh, whims, you know, I'm a huge market supporter, but markets give us what we want. And so if all we want is like in our space, we're in health and fitness, if all we want are convenient, tasty, hyper palatable foods, well, that's what we're going to get. Yeah. That's what we have. Yeah. So it's like you need a responsible society who can make the right choices when the choices are so free. Otherwise, you just end up yeah, in a well, bad place. Well, a consumer, like a free market consumer society can, can feed hedonistic whims, right? And you'll end up eating nothing but sugar and carbohydrates, yeah. for example. And you can understand why people would want to do that because the immediate gratification is very high, but the medium to long-term consequences are negative. And you, you, this is part of the problem with the strict libertarian philosophy and, and even and as a branch, let's say, of classical liberalism is that it reduces people to what they want, but then even more to what they want right now. Right. And the thing is, you're not, you shouldn't be just what you want right now. Well, you can just, all you have to do is think about this like intelligently for a few seconds. You know, there's going to be times in your relationship, say with your wife or your husband, where you're going to get, you're going to be angry, like maybe even enraged. And rage wants defeat of the opponent and victory now. And it wants it at, at all cost. And if you give in to that rage, then you're going to rampage around like a brute and you're going to do something stupid. And it's stupid because it'll compromise you and your relationship in the medium to long term. Like you'll come out of your little rage fit and you'll be embarrassed about how, well, how short term you were. And there's a neurological component to this. So when you're, when you're very young, when you're an infant, say up to about the age of two, your, your behavior is basically controlled by instinctual systems that govern motivation and emotion. And so the basic motivations are thirst and hunger and temperature regulation and, and uh, aggression. And the basic motivations are pain and surprise and joy and anxiety, etc. And those systems are more or less in place when you're first born. And up till about the age of two, you're basically just rotating from domination by one of those systems to another. There's an exploratory system too, by the way. These are very, very deeply seated mm. in the brain, like extremely old from an evolutionary perspective. And that's only about maybe five to 10% of your brain. The rest of your brain is there to integrate all those emotions and motivations across longer and longer spans of time so that more and more people are included. And as we're socialized, what happens is that control of our behavior moves from these low-order motivational and emotional systems up into more evolutionarily recent cortical areas. And that parallels maturation, but it also parallels a more inclusive view of identity and operation over longer and longer time spans. And so we all know this, right? Because one of the things that you try to teach your children is is to delay gratification. Mm -hmm. Now, that sounds like inhibition, like don't be impulsive, but it isn't 
just inhibition. It's just it's not just that you're stopping your kids. What you're doing is helping them develop a more sophisticated form of adaptation that makes the lower order impulses unnecessary. So, for example, if you have a very aggressive kid and you socialize them properly, you don't just inhibit their aggression. What you do is you teach them how to play competitively but fairly, right? And then you get a real optimal kid that Mm -hmm. way because you'll get a kid who's got tremendous drive for victory and who makes a great teammate but who will play by the rules and who will also foster the development of other kids. And You know, that's someone who could be a great team captain Mm -hmm. because he wants to win but he wants to bring everyone along and build them at the same time. And that's not just inhibition of aggression, right? That's substitution of a better game for the aggressive game. And so part of what we want to do at ARC is to make all this clear to people is that there's no difference between responsibility and maturation, let's say. And there's no difference between responsibility and abundance and productivity. And there's also no difference between responsibility and meaning. And that's another one of our major emphasis at ARC is that and this is something that young people are not taught properly, is that, and you guys know this, I mean, you're disciplined people, the deep meaning in your life comes from adopting voluntary responsibility, right? I mean, Completely. that's how you build yeah. yourself. That's how you build a family and a community and a business. And that's, it's, it doesn't gratify your whims, but it's better. And, yeah. and, that, and that parallels... This is something Jonathan Paggio talked about at ARC, and, and he's mm-hmm. quite the genius, you know, that there's a hierarchy of good. And what's at the pinnacle? Well, classically, that's defined as God, the spirit that's at the pinnacle of the hierarchy of good. But good is a progression towards more and more desirable modes of sophisticated being. It's not some arbitrary, like, relativistic, everybody can have an opinion about it. Um, what, what, what do you call it? It's not arbitrary. It's not arbitrary. There's a morality that's built into the structure of human social existence, and we're trying to explain that to people and to get them to understand what it means. Yeah, he said something brilliant in that, and you've said this before in other words, where your value, your top value, will it will tyrannize all the other values to bend and twist themselves to serve this other value. Absolutely. Now he used a few examples, but one of the examples that I think of, you know, there was, I can't remember the person who was on the cover of time magazine, but it was a gentleman who was this climate activist. And literally the quote was Google. It would be, I think it was ex Google executive. And he said, it would be better off if there were no humans at all. Yeah, right. And, and yeah, I mean, yeah. and no, crazy with, statement. Two, that two, yeah, two, yeah two. that's for sure, man. Yeah. You, you <laughs> got to wonder alarming. who's got his tongue. Right. Oh, you know, right. like, we should just kill everybody. Yeah. Well, so, the two things that surprised me about that is one, had he said we should just kill this group of people, yeah. no way he would have been on the cover. But because he's killing everybody, apparently yeah, well, it's, it's equal okay. Opportunity. <laughs> <genocide>. <laughs> yeah. But the second part was, you know, here we have somebody that has made the climate his God. Yeah. Well, it's nature worship, essentially. Right. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. so, of course, killing people makes sense. Everything makes sense if you're it's worshiping. Sacri- well, it's the sacrifice of. It's. Ex- this is one of the things that's so uncanny about the about the natural world. So, in the in the Judeo Christian tradition, part of what happens among with the Israelites is that there's an idea of God that's not nature. And so there's a prophet, Elijah, who really establishes this for the first time. Elijah has a showdown between the prophets of Baal, and Baal is a nature god, and and Yahweh, who's who's the Abrahamic god, and Abraham wins. But the and it's Elijah is the first person who posits that 
the God of Abraham is the voice of conscience. Like it's a massive psychological transformation, mm. you know, because people, modern people, especially the more atheistic and materialist, rationalist types, they don't, you know, they, they, they have a parody vision of God. And that's that, you know, God is an old man with a beard hiding in the clouds, yeah. you know, halfway between here and outer space. And their basic response is, well, we've been to the moon and, you know, we didn't pass through the heavenly domain. And so therefore there's no God. And you can understand that objection to some degree, partly because people haven't been instructed properly about what a more appropriate alternative view is. And one of the more appropriate views, and this is a classic argument for the existence of God, is the voice of conscience. You know, you wake up at three in the morning and you're, you call yourself out on some stupid thing you've done. Now, this is a real mystery because, look, maybe you took advantage of someone for sexual purposes. There's a, that happens to people all the time. You know, maybe you got somebody drunk and took advantage of her. And, and so, and you wake up at three in the morning and you're pretty disgusted with yourself. Conscience comes calling. Well, it's a mystery, right? Because you performed the act. And so, what are, why are you holding yourself responsible now? Yeah. And what is it in you that's holding you responsible? Especially because maybe you'd rather not be held responsible because you'd just as soon... Why can't you just reprogram yourself so you could just do it again with no guilt, with no shame, with no disgust, you know, with no, without a second thought? But you can't. And it was Elijah who first posited that the God of Abraham was the same as the voice of conscience. And so, and that's a very, well, that's a very useful thing to know. And it, it helps people, zero, modern people, zero in on what's at the top. Now, you might say, why would the voice of conscience be associated with what's at the top of a hierarchy of value? And the answer is, when you transgress against what's intrinsically good, the voice of what is intrinsically good will call you on it. Mm. And that happens all the time. That's why you feel guilty. And there's a, what's interesting about that, many things, but one of the things that's interesting about that is that there's a kind of autonomy about it. This is why God is represented in the biblical corpus as a, like as a spiritual force, is that this thing that calls you on your own behavior isn't under your control and yet it's something that seems to be somewhat internal right like because like a sense of shame is something that happens to you it's something internal but you can't control it okay so what do you make of a spirit so to speak a being that's another way of thinking about it that calls you on your misbehavior subjectively that you can't control <laughs> well you have to define it as something and elijah defined he said oh that's the same thing as the god of abraham it's the same thing that you make sacrifices to and you what's the logic in that well to sacrifice something is to give something up that you value right it's the same as work because what you're doing when you work is you give up your time for some future gain it's like the definition of work okay so you sacrifice. And what do you sacrifice? Well, if you're smart, you sacrifice the lower to the higher because it would be a kind of stupid sacrifice to give up what's great and get what's you know lesser as a consequence. So in principle, when you're making a sacrifice, the sacrifice is towards something better. And then you might say, well, what's the ultimate sacrifice and what's the ultimate point of the sacrifice? And that would be the ultimate good. And it's also the ultimate good 
that calls you out on your misbehavior. And as far as I can tell, like, I just don't see a way around that argument. Mm-hmm. Now, you might say, well, that's not God. It's like, well, have it your way, man. Like, you, you come <laughs> up you with a better explanation. Yeah, yeah. You're, welcome to, you're welcome to come up well, with a better right. explanation. Well, this right. makes me ask it. So, uh, something we kept hearing uh, at ARC was that we need a better story, mm-hmm. right? Or a narrative. Like, yeah. Why are, no, are narratives and stories so important yeah, yeah, to humans? Yeah. Like, why do we need a narrative? That's, great. And, and, that's and, a great question. Yeah, mm-hmm. what is that? Well... You know, the the rationalists and the, okay, so the empiricists believe that you learn, you're socialized, you gather information, you're educated because of incoming sense data, right? Everything that you have in your mind, in your psyche is a consequence of your sensory experience, okay? Well, there's a big problem with that theory. The theory is wrong. The advanced cognitive neuroscientists know 100% that that theory is wrong. And the reason for that is that well, there's an infinite number of facts. Like, there's, there's one fact per object, but then there's facts for any number of combinations of objects, yeah. too. And so, you drown in facts. Now, you can, people experience this, actually, at times. So, one of the things that psychedelic experience does is, what would you say? It, it plunges you more into the world of pure fact and everything becomes miraculous and there's way too much to pay attention to. And the problem with that is you can't orient yourself. Like if you're paying attention to everything, you're just going to die. You have to have a hierarchy of attentional prioritization. So for example, you you can notice this while we're talking, we're looking at each all we're doing is looking at each other's right, eyes. Right, even though there's all this. Right. And even there's many things we could be could paying be a attention gorilla to. Back there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, that's right. There could be a gorilla back there. I wouldn't even yeah. know. Yeah, you wouldn't even notice it. Well, that's right. So so at at with every move of your eyes, you're inhabiting a pyramid of attentional prioritization. Something's at the pinnacle. And the thing that's at the pinnacle is the thing that's dominating your attention. Okay, so that, that's, that's with every glance. And this is another problem with the empirical view. Like, the empiricists think we're just passive observers of the factual world. But we're not passive. Like, when you're using your eyes, there's like four different kinds of eye movements that are going on all the time when you're looking at something. There's these little movements called saccades that move your eyes back and forth. If your eyes stop moving, even for an instant, you instantly go blind Mm. because the cells at the back of your retina will exhaust themselves. And so Mm. your eyes move so that the visual image moves across cells so they don't exhaust themselves. But then you're also, you know, you can voluntarily move your eyes. There's eye fields in the front of your brain that allow you to do that. And then if something unexpected occurs, you'll automatically move your eyes towards it. And when you're seeing... Imagine you closed your eyes and you wanted to, and you hadn't seen this microphone. You want to get a picture of it. You could, you could touch the microphone multiple times with your fingertips and you could build a picture of the microphone in your imagination. That's what blind people do. And you can feel your way around a room and you can even feel someone's face and get a picture of it. You're doing exactly the same thing with your eyes, even though you don't know it. Is you're, 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 it's like throwing a basketball at a, at a statue trying to get a picture of it. Mm. You're, you're, you're hitting the world with your eyes constantly and you're making choices about what to aim your eyes at and to direct your attention. Okay, you do that in a, in a pyramidal structure that puts something at the top. Now, what we're doing here, okay, why are we attending to each other's eyes? Because we want to see what, what each person is looking at. Okay, that'll help us determine if our attention is shared. And if we're having a genuine conversation, like kids playing a game, 
our attention is going to be focused on the same thing. Okay, what is our attention focused on in this situation? Well, if we're having an honest conversation, then what our attention is focused on is the transformation of our psyches as the conversation proceeds, right? And so each of us, in principle, is willing to give up our stupid ideas insofar as they can be modified by someone else. So it's a sacrificial offering. It's like I'm talking to you because, you know, I could be talking to you to dominate you or to look impressive or to do something narcissistic, or I could be listening to you to see if you know something that will modify something I know, which will like kill it and force it to regrow. Mm. And so we're participating in this process of sacrifice and regeneration, and our attention is focused on that. Okay, what's a story? A story is a description of someone's hierarchy of attention. Mm. So if you go to a movie, for example, you see the hero, that you'll watch the hero and you'll see what he's attending to and that'll give you some insight into his hierarchy of values and then there'll be consequences to him playing out that hierarchy of values in the world and you'll evaluate the consequences and so you know if he ends up in prison for example or being beat to death or ends up in some state of abject misery what you're going to conclude is that that's a hierarchy of attentional prioritization that you don't want to emulate (laughs) Mm. and so and even more broadly, you could say that there's two patterns of attentional prioritization that are archetypal. You see that played out in the hero and the anti-hero. That's archetypally, that would be Cain and Abel, or it's Christ and Satan, it's Batman and the Joker, it's Superman and Lex Luthor. The whole idea of a supervillain is a variant of the idea of Satan. You see that permeating, for example, the the Harry Potter stories, because mm-hmm. Voldemort obviously is a variant of Satan. I mean, he's a serpent for Christ's sake. Like, yeah. how obvious does it have to be? <laughs> yeah. And it's it's you could say that there's the the most beneficial possible hierarchy of attention, and then there's the most destructive possible hierarchy of attention. And great stories dramatize the conflict between those two mm. things, and that's the conflict huh. between that's the eternal battle between good and evil, fundamentally. And, you know, if you have any sense, you want to be on the right side of that. <laughs> so, in essence... Where does Klaus Schwab uh, fit in this whole... <laughs> yeah, well, we're all trying to figure that out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, Schwab and the WAF types, they're basically rational technocrats, right? And mm. so, there, there is a biblical theme of rational... The rational technocrats build the Tower of Babel all mm. the time. And so, what they're doing is building... The Tower of Babel is a ziggurat. And a ziggurat is a pyramid. It's stepped. Okay? And it's, it's a very ancient form of architectural design and in babylon that's babel in babylon in ancient times the the kings had competitions in the different city states that existed at that time to see who could build the highest ziggurat and the idea was you know the guy with the biggest ziggurat is closest to god Mm. right and so what happens in the tower of babel story is that people are building these ziggurats trying to replace God with technological accomplishment, right? Trying to put themselves in the place of God and Mm -hmm. God gets irritated about that and he makes it unable for people to communicate. And well, we're in that situation now because I can give you an example of that is that because we're worshiping the wrong things, we're building the wrong towers, we can't even agree on what a man and a woman is anymore. That's Mm, how fragmented our speech has become. Is it, yeah. is it safe to say then that stories and narratives essentially orient us to the world? Exactly. And help us exactly move what they through do. it. We see, we see the world. You can't, 
You have to see the world through a story. I was talking to this guy named Carl Friston a while back, and he's one of the he's the world's most cited neuroscientist at the moment. He invented the technology that enables people to interpret MRIs. And so Friston's like a major league scientist. And I asked him, is an object perception a micro-narrative? It's a very specific question. It's mm. an odd question. Because it, it you wouldn't think that that would necessarily be the case. And he said, he said something like, like necessarily and inevitably. Mm. And so, you know, mm. and, and this is something that we don't, this is another reason why the empiricists are wrong. It's like when you see something like this bottle, say, you're not seeing an object. You're seeing something of functional significance. Yeah. It's a tool. It's not an object. There's a difference between an object and a tool. A tool can be used. And essentially what you're doing when you look at the world is you're, look, you're, you're looking for pathways, tools, and obstacles. And the, the story that you inhabit is the pathway, and it lays out the tools and the obstacles. And, and there's no way out of that. It's not like there's some basic level of perception underneath that that you overlay tools and obstacles on. Quite the contrary. It's primary. So I, I can give you an example of that too. There's a, there's a form of brain damage that produces a behavior called utilization behavior. And so if you have prefrontal damage, that's a very advanced part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex. It's the part that's responsible for abstract thought. If it's damaged, you can develop a condition called utilization behavior. And if you're dealing with a patient who has utilization behavior and you put a cup in front of them, they have to pick it up and drink it. And they can't walk down a hallway with an open door without turning mm. through the door. And it's because you, 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 you see, you literally see the world as a place there called affordances of offerings for action. Mm. And the reason for that is we're navigators. We're not... People who lay a, what would you call, a film of meaning over a meaningless world. Mm. That isn't mm. how it works. What we perceive is meaning. Is meaning. Wow. Yes, we perceive meaning. You know, the That's AI right. scientists huh. uh, uh, that uh, ran into this problem when they, they initially thought, read this article, where they initially thought that they could just have the cameras, yeah. look at things and identify chair, yeah. couch, <laughs> and they kept running into problems because how do you teach this computer that that's a chair and this is a table? Yeah. You know, because or I mean, that a beanbag and a stump are both chairs, right? Given that they don't look the same in any way, yeah. And right. This is exactly what Huge they said. Problem. Is oh that, yeah, yeah. They hit that in the 1960s. About the same time, it was about the same time that the postmodernists figured out that we saw the world through a story, and it was the same discovery. Is that and, and that and that that's a, that's a very astute observation. It took a long time to build machines that could operate in the world, not because action itself was difficult, but because perception was so difficult. It's so difficult, really, that it seems impossible. It's virtually impossible. This to goes see back the world. to our our debate about the robot and the not being able to decipher. Yeah. Where so we have this ongoing debate on the podcast on whether we'll have robots in our house doing the dishes or not, yep. or we'll actually be traveling in space. And I say that we're yeah. going to be traveling space first, commercial moon flight. And the reason why <laughs> I say that is because the AI they cannot figure out how to teach the AI to know if the plate is clean or dirty. Yeah, it can move a plate all day long but yep. to be able to decipher between yeah. if it being clean or dirty yeah well the, the dish i have a chapter in my new book called uh, postmodernism and dishwashing robots <laughs> well it's because because you think you know like an entry level job is dishwasher right it's like yeah fine that's easy is it build a machine that can wash dishes oh, great. because you think yeah. about what I a dish think about <laughs> oh, what a dishwasher has to More do it's like camp. not only do you have to get the dishes clean whatever that means you know when i worked as a dishwasher I had some trouble to begin with because 
these the cooks would bring me these old pots, you know, these huge pots that they did. And they were covered with like varnish, essentially, mm-hmm. from being used so often. And I had no idea. It's like they wanted me to clean it. Well, how clean? And that's actually an unbelievable... Clean enough. Okay. Right. Clean enough for what? Because yeah. that's where the story right. comes in, right? Clean enough to make delicious food safely yeah. um, with no risk of contamination for your clients, but not so clean that you spend all day taking every bit of varnish off that pot so that you can't clean any other pots, right? And then at the same time, while you're getting along with the cooks, while you're getting along with the waitresses, right? While you're trying not to be a pain in the neck, while you're trying to have a bit of a sense of humor, like it's unbelievably complicated. And it's because as a dishwasher, you're nested in a very, very complex story. And it's not something that's easy to substitute Mm. with, with the I feel so validated. Okay, I want to stay in this this talking about the importance of stories because I I had a question I wanted to ask you and I wasn't sure if it was going to come up in this conversation, but this is perfect for it because one of my my um, favorite talks you did, you actually did in San Jose and was actually the Q&A portion at the end. And you were asked a question about what you would do differently uh, with your raising your kids. And your answer actually was, well, you would have took them to church. Yeah. And I thought that was, I don't think any of us thought that answer was coming. And so I, I have a feeling that has to do with the storytelling. It does, it okay, does. so well, elaborate you know, on that a little well, bit. I taught this course at Harvard and at the University of Toronto called Maps of Meaning, which is online and, and in, various, in, in various forms. And some of it was an explication of some biblical stories. I concentrated on Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Exodus, mostly in, 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 in those courses. And that was fine when I started teaching in the 1990s, let's say, because every one of my students knew the stories. But by the time 2015 rolled around, there were lots of kids in the class who didn't know the biblical stories, and so it was very difficult Mm -hmm. to make reference to them. And so, whether we know it or not, the biblical stories are at the core of the shared story through which we all see the world. Mm-hmm. And when you, lose the, when you lose the basic stories, you lose the reference points for the story as such. Now, people are really starting to figure this out. You know, I talked to, at the art conference, I talked to Ayan Hirsi Ali, mm. and Ayan escaped from a very fundamentalist form of Islam, and her and her husband, Neil, were both very much attracted to the new atheist doctrines mm-hmm. as and Douglas Murray's in exactly the same camp and they've come to understand that there's no there's no secularizing morality it has to be based on stories mm. right and carl jung talked about stories so ma- imagine this is another way of thinking about the necessity of stories is that there are things you know that you can say and then there are things that you don't even know you don't know And so then imagine there's a gap between the things you're just absolutely ignorant about. They're far beyond your comprehension. You don't even know that they exist. And the things that you know well enough to talk about. Well, there has to be a buffer between those. You you can't just move from the absolutely unknown to the completely spoken in one fell swoop. The dream the dream is on the edge of the mm. unknown, right? And because a dream, when you have a dream, you think, what the hell was that all about? Which is a weird thing to think because you dreamt it up. It's like, <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? That, well, it's so strange, yeah, isn't it? That, yeah, you know, yeah. Freud said, well, you're trying to disguise the meaning of the dream from yourself because it points to repressed content. And mm. sometimes that happens. But Jung's take on that was, no, no, no. 
the dream is where the mind meets the mystery of the world. And the dream is the first transformation of what's absolutely mysterious into what's partially known. So it's the first mapping. Mm. And so, well, you can ima imagine this. Imagine that you go on a date and you're pretty happy with the girl that you're with. And then you start to fantasize about her. And what you're doing is building a model of what she might be like, right? And, you know, maybe it's a naive model and it's uh, it's wish fulfillment because you build her into something that she's not or or maybe you saw something in her that will blossom into love which is actually a representation of her true character but in any case the fantasy is the first foray of knowledge mm. and that's the dream and well a description of a dream is a story and so we have our propositional knowledge the, the philosophies and, and the philosophy and the explicit knowledge we have, but that's nested inside a story. It has to be. And then the story is nested inside a dream and the dream gets stranger and stranger at its edges until it fades out into what we don't understand at all. Now, part of what the biblical narrative is, is the dream in which our culture is embedded. And you might say, well, is the dream true? It's like, well, it's a funny question because the truth of a dream isn't the same as the truth of an explicit philosophical argument. It's a different kind of knowledge. It's imaginative knowledge. Like, look, I, I can give you an example of, of the complexity of this truth. So, one of the, there's an insistence in the Old Testament that the proper relationship between man and God is one of sacrifice. Okay, because they, sacrifice is just a constant theme, right? It's right, as soon as, as soon as Adam and Eve are kicked out of paradise, they have to work, and work is a form of sacrifice. And the story of Cain and Abel is a story of two patterns of sacrifice. Like genuine sacrifice, that's Abel. And false sacrifice, that's Cain. And false sacrifice is what you engage in when you're trying to get away with something. Mm. Okay, so, but why is the relationship sacrificial? Well, it's because that's how we establish our relationship to the future, right? Is we, we, we don't just live in the present. We live now and we live tomorrow and we live next week and next year and five years from now, and we have to govern our behavior in the present because of our knowledge of the future. And that makes the way that we interact with the world sacrificial. Mm. We're always giving up the immediate now for something more comprehensive. Okay, so the biblical narrative is trying to take that apart. How do you best give something up? And what's the ultimate target of the sacrifice? That's really the question that's being asked. And so, the sacrifices get more and, ex more and more extreme. So, exam for example, Abraham is called upon to sacrifice his son. Mm -hmm. And that's really something, right? I think most people who have a child would rather die than have their child put to death, right? right? So, the sacrifice of a son, it's the ultimate sacrifice. Now, you might say, well, why do you have to make the ultimate sacrifice? Now, what happens in the story is God calls on Abraham to sacrifice his son, and then he doesn't have to. And so, the moral there is that if... You, you will not be deprived of anything you're willing to give up. Mm. Right, right. This wow. is a very, right. It's a very strange, it's a very strange idea, right? Mm. Is that, and then you, could, you, could, you can think about that very practically. It's like, well, life is going to call on you to, it's going to call on you to go through some very difficult times. And if you're going to adapt to those difficult times, you have to give up everything that would stop you from adapting. Mm. And God only knows what that might be. There's a motif that emerges as the biblical corpus develops that calls for a higher and higher form of sacrifice. And so by the time you get to Christ, and so Christ's story is the ultimate sacrifice. That's a good way of thinking about it technically. The moral is you have to confront everything 
everything about life, everything about malevolence, and you have to give up everything. And if you're willing to do that, then everything is returned to you. And I think that's, I actually think that's just right. I think that's the case. That's a great, that's also awesome. It absolutely. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Two things come to mind when you talk about the importance of stories. You know, if we were to talk, for example, about, let's say the environment. Yeah. Okay. One story is that we're a cancer on this planet and we're just, we're destroying everything. And so if that's your story, well, then you're hopeless. And the answer is, well, by all means necessary, protect the environment, including um, allowing people who are unfortunate uh, to, to die away because they can't afford these new energy sources or whatever, right? Yeah. So it's sacrifice everything for this. The other story could be the em- environment's important. Most important thing though, in this story is people. That's mm-hmm. why we want a clean environment. So let's, let's, let's innovate. Mm-hmm. Let's have more people. Whereas the other story might be like, don't have people, they're cancer. Yeah. The other story might say, we need more people because that's who solves these problems. Yeah, including environmental problems. That's right, right. And then the second part that reminded me, my grandfather came here a long time ago. He he passed away, but he came here as an immigrant and you know he loved this country so much. He was a poor Sicilian and he came here. And I remember him telling me, he goes, you know, it was different back then. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, when I came here, you had people from all these different countries um, and you know, just, we didn't speak the same language and there were, I was Italian, then you had Jewish people, you had Irish people, you had German people. And and he goes, but we all had the same story. We all mm-hmm. came here for the same reason. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, we all came here for opportunities. So we all work together. Mm-hmm. The story seems to have changed to where you have lots of different people, but it's not this, they don't share that same mm-hmm. story. And so mm-hmm. now we have all this conflict, whereas- mm-hmm. Well, know, that's, what, that's what you have when people don't share the same story. You have conflict. And that's the basic flaw in- diversity theory and multicultural theory. It's like the world's multicultural. And obviously there's tremendous benefits to that. I mean, the fact that we have all these different cultures means that we have repositories of wisdom and knowledge that we can all draw Mm. on and share. And anyone with any sense would think of that as a wonderful opportunity. But the flip side is, well, wherever there's multiculturalism, there's conflict between cultures and there's war. And so the price you pay for a fragmented narrative is war. And you might think, well, we can just import all those cultures into our own culture, but how are you going to do that without importing the war? It's like is some mm. somebody's going to wave a magic wand and only the positive aspects of the diversity are going to remain. And so the postmodernists, one of the core claims of postmodernism is that there's no uniting narrative. Mm. Okay, no uniting meta-narrative. And this it's a preposterous claim, partly because... Every action you undertake is a consequence of a uniting narrative. So, for example, if I reach to pick up this bottle, I'm doing like 100,000 insanely complicated things Mm -hmm. to move my hand voluntarily. Like, I don't even know what they are. I can feel that I have voluntary control over my muscles, but I can't control the cellular activity. That's Mm -hmm. all happening automatically. But this this smooth movement to produce this outcome... Is a, that's a uniting narrative. The uniting narrative is, it's good to drink some water. <laughs> you know, and it's a, it's a relatively low-order narrative, but it's still a uniting narrative. Otherwise, my behavior would just be completely incoherent. And the narratives, we have narratives that unite our perceptions and our actions at every level, all the way up to the top. That's what happens in a society that is functioning well. And the American dream was the, uniting narrative yes, yes. and it was something like the it was something like the search for abundance and opportunity 
in one nation under God. Yes. It was something like that. And the modern insistence is that's all power and oppression mm. and that we don't need a uniting narrative. It's like, well, fine, then we have conflict. And that's just not... The criticism is that that uniting narrative was nothing but a manifestation of power. No. And that's just not, that's it's so, just it's not so right. Na- it's so naive to think that way. Anybody who's ever been on a successful sport team or ran a successful business, imagine doing that without a narrative, without having a, right. a, a common goal that we're right. all moving right. towards. Right. Good yeah. luck. Or, or imagine <laughs> doing that on the basis of power. Right. You know, it's like you're going to be the team captain and you're what are you going to do? You're going to beat everybody up when they don't perform properly? I mean, you can, you can pound people into shape. It's a stupid way of leading. Totally. It's, mm-hmm. it's, and it's going to produce all sorts of counterproductive And you're going to lose. You're not going to win. That's right. You're not, and you're going to get taken out. Yeah, yeah. You know, Franz de Waal, a great primatologist, he's been studying chimpanzees forever, you know, and we have this notion that it's the roughest, toughest, power-mad chimp that rules the damn roost. And de Waal has shown that that's not the case for chimps, even for chimps, because the brutes, they can dominate for a while, but as soon as they have an off day, two or three of the subordinates, absolutely, and yep. take them out, yep. right, in the most brutal possible way. And that's generally how dictatorial tyrants end. Mm-hmm. You know, they're tearing apart, like Mussolini was torn apart, or mm-hmm. they end up like Hitler, you know, in a burning yeah. bunker, mm-hmm. putting a gun to his head. It's power. The, the leftists, and this came out of postmodernism to some degree, the leftists insist that the narrative that has united us in the past at every social level is one of power. And that's... It's unbelievably cynical, that viewpoint. It's not true. It justifies the use of power, which I think is its fundamental motivation. Like, if it's nothing but power, man, and I've got some power, of course I can use it because there's no other narrative. And it's just naive to think so. It's like everybody's just after power, you know? It's like, really, that's your theory of the world, is it? (laughs) Everybody's after. And why would you even want it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the idea with ARC was get all these people together who have some sort of influence yeah. to help shift and change the narrative yeah, because yeah, the one yeah. we currently have definitely, I, I was going to say seems, but I think it's pretty clear yeah. is producing despair, yeah. anxiety, yeah. hopelessness, hopelessness, um, you know, cynicism it, it, during yeah. a time when we have more, I mean, abundance than we've ever had. Yeah. I mean, for all intents yeah. and purposes, almost doesn't make sense. You know? Well, this is the thing that Paggio put his finger on at the art conference. He said, you know, along with the uh, material abundance that we've produced, we have an abundance of despair. You know, and Jonathan Haidt has really documented this as the topic for his next book. I think his data now suggests that the, the, the median liberal female is more likely than not to be diagnosed with a mental illness. Right, and he thinks most of those women in particular, because he's been focusing mostly on women, they're, most of them won't be married, most of them won't have children. And you might say, well, that's fine if they don't want to have children. It's like, it's not so simple. So this is what the data show right now. This is brutal. It's brutal. 50% of women who are 30 don't have a child. Okay? Mm. Half of them will never have a child. Half. So that's 25% of women. 90% of them will regret it. <sighs> So imagine that now we have, mm. we have 90% of 25%. So let's say that's 20%. 20% of women are going to end up voluntarily childless. In, in, sorry, involuntarily childless. Well, think about the trajectory of their life. You know, it's fine to be single when you're maybe, when you're, say, between 20 and 35 and you're young and you're fit and you're beautiful and you're attractive and, 
you have the possibility of multiple relationships, say, maybe with the proper relationship as the goal. But that's not so fun by the time you're 45. And it's downright dreadful by the time you're 60. And the typical woman now who's 60 can expect to live to 90. It's like, what the hell are you going to do with those 30 years? No family, no long-term relationship? Well, since, we're God, talking about, since we're talking about stories, let's talk about the narrative around being parents. You know, uh, growing up in this culture, like fathers were always presented as bumbling idiots yeah, or, yeah. or, oh my gosh, I'm Homer married, Simpson. life is over. Yeah. And the guy who wasn't married, he's got the fast cars, all the girls, that's the way you should go. Yeah, he's Andrew Tate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, Every yeah. single man is Andrew oh, Tate. Yeah. That's probably the scariest part about his, because there's a lot of things that we've talked about Andrew before, yeah. and there's a lot of things that he says that I agree with, yeah. but it's dangerous that that's the guy that all these young men are looking yeah. to. Yeah, well, it's not much different than rap culture in the 90s. Mm. I don't, you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. look, if you're, if you're demoralized and dependent and neurotic and afraid, and you see a tough guy who basically says, you know, up yours to the world, I'm going to get what I want. You can see that as a developmental progression, yeah. right? And maybe that that's something like the attraction of the shadow. Those boys that are so dependent, they're nowhere near aggressive enough. And then Tate comes along and like, he's genuinely, he's a tough guy. He's a real fighter. So you got to give the devil his due, yeah. you know, but he's putting forward a vision of maturity that's quite short-term and hedonistic and i think that's best exemplified by the fact that he got tangled up with you know the whole only fans yeah uh, how he made his money is yeah. what really Very shifted the way oh I yeah man when, there's no like there's no excuse for that there's yeah. zero excuse yeah. for yeah, that yeah, and yeah. They, that's that's and maybe he has enough sense to regret it but you know i doubt it because you don't do that sort of thing to begin with unless you've strayed pretty far into the dark side of the of the of the world. Well, yeah, this is evidence of the narrative going wrong where it used to be a source of pride for a man, you know, two men meet each other. How many children do you have? Six yeah. kids. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. You could support and it turned into oh, how many kids do you have? Six kids. Oh man, sorry about that. Yeah. That really, yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. and for women, the narrative completely changed to where it was uh, oppressive and burdensome and they lost the freedom. Yeah. And that narrative is what's causing this. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Well, and you got to ask yourself too, like, okay, freedom. What, what do you mean by that? Freedom for what? Yeah. Okay, let's say it's freedom for sequential short-term sexual affairs. <laughs> okay, so that doesn't work for women. There's no evidence at all that that works for women. Like, it works for a higher proportion of men, but it works for virtually no women. And so the situation that women find themselves in is that that form of sexual misbehavior just dooms them to a kind of shame. And I think the reason for that is sex is costly for women. Mm -hmm. And for obvious reasons, Jesus, you don't have to be a genius to figure out why that is. Mm -hmm. And so what is this, this freedom? It's this heat. It's not freedom. It's, 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 it's the elevation of the hedonistic whim to the highest place in the in the pinnacle it's like well i can sleep with whoever i want whenever i want yeah. it's like well here's another frightening thing about that so there's two broad mating strategies reproductive strategies you might say among human beings and they echo broader strategies that are part and parcel of the animal kingdom there's like the long-term investment strategy and there's the short-term sexual strategy and so mosquitoes famously are on the short-term end of the reproductive spectrum so their bet is 
well, we'll lay a million eggs and we won't pay any attention to them. And like 999,999 <laughs> of them will die, yeah. <laughs> but one will live and that's good yeah. enough because it keeps us, you know, in numbers mosquitoes. Yeah. Right, it's a numbers game. Absolutely, it's a numbers game. And the other, other uh, reproductive strategy is high investment. And human beings are the highest investment animals by a huge margin, Period. right? I mean, mm -hmm. like raccoons, I think they take care of their young for like three years. And there's a fair number of animals who have a, lengthy dependency period but in humans it's like 18 years yeah you know, we can't take care of ourselves for a long time for, yeah. yeah right till you're 40 like, and, and, right and even even after that it's still communal and familial yes. right and so okay so human beings tilt to the long-term investment side of things and the better people do that better okay so now why do i know that well imagine that you look among people who are pursuing uh partners for for who are pursuing partners, partly for sex. You could imagine there's two strategies. There are people who are looking for a sexual partner within the context of a long-term intimate relationship. And then there are people who just want to sleep around, right? And they want as many partners as they can in the shortest possible period of time. And that's the player mentality. Mm -hmm. Okay, then you say, well, what personality characteristics predict short-term mating mm -hmm. preference? Well, we know it's dark tetrad. It's dark tetrad features. So the people who prefer one night stands preferentially are, this is fun, narcissistic, psychopathic, Machiavellian, so they're manipulative, and to cap it all off, sadistic. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. Well, so that so that's not to to have the opportunity to become someone like that, that's not freedom. Right? That's that's elevation of the lowest possible desire to the highest possible place. It's, it's a myth of freedom. In, in, yep. in what we do with health, uh, people sometimes will say, well, God, I just want to be able to eat whatever I want. I want to be able to not exercise. That's too yeah. much structure. That's not enough freedom. <laughs> to which I say, you know. It's chaos, not well, freedom. The, the fact that if you stay fit and healthy, you have more freedom. I can yeah, run right, up the stairs. Right. I can yeah. play with my kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't lose mobility. I don't get so sick that I need all these medications. So it's right. really a myth. It's not a trade. You know, I, 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 we position it as like a, oh, you sacrifice all this freedom for. And reality is, you're far more free. Yeah, right. By well, doing that, it the right well, way. Well, that's the thing about that's the thing about like a, what would you call it a, 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 a genuine discipline. Like you can think of discipline as you shouldn't do that, but that isn't what discipline is. Discipline is the integration into a higher form of freedom. That's mm. that's a much better way of thinking about it. It's like, yeah, you're a lot freer if when you're 50, you basically have the physique of someone who's 30, mm. right? And if, if, you, if the price you pay for that is that you have to give up gluttony, mm -hmm. which is exactly what I want to eat whatever I want to eat whenever I want right. to eat it, that's, that's not freedom. That means you're completely subordinate to your hunger, yeah. Right, that's not freedom yeah. unless you think you're your hunger, which you're, is a pretty a, dismal way of thinking. They're heavy yourself. chains, heavy mm, chains to right. carry around. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. When I, when you know, I've been wanting to ask you this question. Every time I watch you talk, you're, uh, in my opinion, uh, my strong opinion, you're incredibly, in just brilliant and intelligent in terms of human behavior and what drives us. And I know from my space, some of the best coaches and trainers are good because we struggled internally with a lot of these things ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and that just drove us to learn more and more. So I can't help but wonder, are, are, are you so hungry for understanding humans because you've had internal struggles? Is this what drove you and what continues to drive you 
to learn as much as you do and just to dive into these subjects. Well, I think some of it's just natural curiosity. You know, I'm okay. curious about everything, but I also had a very specific target that emerged for me back when I was in my early 20s. I was vi- earlier than that, even probably first when I was about 13 or 12, when I first became aware of what happened in Nazi Germany. Mm. I was very interested in concentration camps and, mm. and how a very specific interest, which was, how could you be a guard in a concentration camp? Mm. Mm-hmm. Or how could you enjoy being a guard in a concentration camp? Which is an even darker question. Mm. And that's, you know, that's, that sort of thing fascinates virtually everyone because you see all these movies we have about serial killers and about psychopaths, about, you know, people yeah. who are extremely criminal. There's a real fascination with evil, but I couldn't find a more pure manifestation of evil than, you know, concentration camp guard at Auschwitz who's happy with his job. And so then that brings up two questions. It's like, well, is that person just a monster, you know, like the Nazi monster of of a relatively simple-minded movie who's completely unlike you, or is that someone who's like you? And Mm. the evidence, unfortunately, suggests quite strongly that many of the people who committed brutal atrocities in Nazi Germany were they're absolutely indistinguishable from the typical person. Was that terrifying so, to realize? Terrifying. Like, yeah. oh my terrifying. gosh, this is potential. We all have this potential. Oh, it's abs- there isn't anything more. Look, there's two things you can confront that terrify you, really. Like there's the domain of mortality, right? Illness and death sure. and physical and psychological degeneration. I mean, that's pretty damn terrifying. But what's more terrifying than that, I think, is malevolence. Like, and... And to confront that, there isn't anything more terrifying than that. You see, so in the Christian story, for example, I, I, so Christ's story is the story of ultimate confrontation with existence. That's a good way of thinking about it. And so Christ's death is the worst possible death, right? Because it's the most painful death, and it's a consequence of betrayal and of tyranny, and it's in front of the people he loves, and he's young, and he's innocent, mm. and not only innocent, but good. So it's the worst form of brutal death. Yeah. And so he confronts that voluntarily. But that's not all because part of the mythological tradition is that once Christ is crucified, he descends to hell itself. And so you might ask, well what does that mean? And what it means is that if you're going to confront life fully, you have to confront the reality of unjust suffering, that would be the realm mm-hmm. of unjust death, and you have to confront the reality of malevolence. And then as Within you, yourself. Well, that's the thing is first mm-hmm. of all First of all, you sort of confront evil as an external reality, mm-hmm. right? It's the bad guys, it's the Nazis, it's the communists, it's it's whoever is convenient for you not to like, let's say. But as you look into that more and more deeply, what happens is that it pulls inside of you, right? It starts to become something that's personal and psychological, spiritual, and not something that's external. That's why Solzhenitsyn said that the line between good and evil runs down the heart of every single person. And so, one of the things, for example, I learned about totalitarian states is we have this idea that a totalitarian state is like a bunch of freedom-loving people oppressed by like Hitler or Stalin. And that's just not, it's not the case at all. There's nothing about that model that's true. In a totalitarian state, every person lies about absolutely everything to themselves all the time and to everyone they love. And it's the grip of the lie that's the totalitarian state. I'll, I'll give you an example. So I was just reading this book by a guy named Theodore Dale Rimple. It's called The Wider Shores of Marxism. I think that's the name of the book. And he went to North Korea 
and went to Pyongyang, which is the capital, which is sort of a showcase capital. And there's a department store there mm. that's many stores high, and it's full of the best consumer goods that North Korea can produce. And believe me, you know, those aren't very good. But even the communists have to show, despite the fact that, you know, they're contemptuous of modern capitalism, they have to show that they're perfectly capable of producing, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. the workers' paradise. So yeah. there's this big store, there's hundreds or thousands of North Koreans in it, and they're acting out buying. And so what Dalrymple did, he's a brilliant essayist, he followed some of them around to see what exactly they were up to, because you can't pull your, the wool over his eyes. He's a smart guy. And he saw that a bunch of them would just go up an escalator around a block inside the department store, down the escalator, and then back up. And they were doing that like 10 hours a day. Wow. That was their job. And nothing in the department store was for sale. It was all for show. Wow. So, so, and then he did, and he did something really funny, which was he decided he'd buy something, which no one ever does, including the foreigners. So he went and bought a pen, and he picked up the box of the pen, and he said it was encased in really cheap cardboard, and the ink that on the cover uh, or the box had bled through everywhere because the cardboard was so cheap. And you know, in 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 the modern West. I don't know, you guys, you buy things from Amazon. The packaging is just a bloody miracle. Yeah. Right? It looks like he's just being sent yeah. something from heaven. Yeah. The packaging is so perfect. Yeah. Anyways, he took the pen out and the rubber was too hard to erase a pen and the ink was dry and like the little metal clip on it snapped off right away. It's like, so the reason I'm telling you this is because in a totalitarian state, absolutely everything is a lie. Mm. The wow. pen is a lie. Wow. It's not a pen. It's a sim simulacrum of a pen that you use to produce some theater to deceive dim-witted Westerners into presuming that mm -hmm. North Korea is the communist paradise. And people can't even buy the non-existent pen. They have to act out the fact that they're shopping, even though they're not, and they don't have any money. And even if they did have money, nothing they bought would work. It's just lies, it's lies, like lies. Our Hollywood. Mm. Yeah. Well, you, right. you said something a while ago that blew me away. Years ago, I heard you say, you, you think that if you went back in time in Nazi Germany, that you would be Schindler. The odds are oh, you would, yeah. you would be a Nazi. That. Oh, and yeah. I, that, You'd be Schindler. Wow. That yeah, right. <laughs> completely blew my mind because as a kid, you think, oh, those evil, I would have been. And then you think about it, you really think about it, you go, most people would have gone right along. Well, look what happened during COVID. Oh, I, I mean, know. I really saw this in Toronto. My, my conclusion in Toronto was that 70% of Canadians would have worn a mask for the rest of their life, happily, with, not, with no complaint. And 30% of them would have been thrilled to do that because it gave them an opportunity to inform on their neighbors. Mm. <laughs> brutal, oh, brutal. Yeah. So, you know, with the, with the importance of, of, of narratives and stories, and we now have, I mean, when the, when the printing press was invented, that was just incredible. Like the first time the average person now had access to stories, there were no gatekeepers, or at least there were less gatekeepers uh, than there were before. Now we have the internet. Now mm -hmm. we have all this media. Yeah. The, the, I mean, we started our podcast. Nobody got in our way. We didn't need any sponsors. We just put it on air. Mm -hmm. So the potential for both good and bad are almost mm -hmm. endless. Yeah. What, how do you feel about that? Do you feel... Well, I think that's a good way of, of putting it. I okay. think what... Well, I think what distinguishes the time we're in is that the, the battle between good and evil has been going on forever, but slowly. Mm. Well, it's not slow now. It's really fast, mm. and it's going to get faster and faster. What's and that going to look like? Is it just a faster? It, you'll swing? see. Yeah. You you can see it unfolding right in front of us. Yeah. I mean, what part of it'll be 
a rate of technological change so rapid that we won't even know right. what's yeah. happening. Like, how 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 closely have you been able to follow the advances in AI? No. Oh well, God. right, you just can't, yeah. right? No. Yeah. First of all, there was ChatGPT, and then like the next week, there were <laughs> 10 ridiculously sophisticated new artificial intelligence yeah. technologies that no one had ever dreamed yeah. of. You yeah. can't even keep track of them. Yeah, yeah. And so we are in a situation where I think we can see the the starkness of the choice before us more clearly than at at any other time in history. We could enter into a period of unbelievable abundance and opportunity, or we could make a hell so complete that everything we've done so far would just look like practice. And I think part of the reason I'm touring around and doing these sorts of podcasts and so forth is to, and this is part of the purpose of ARC, it's like, well, which of those two realities are we going to choose? And the answer is, well, what are you going to choose? Because that's the answer. It's like, no, it's not up to Klaus Schwab and the WEF, buddy. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. And that's a terrifying proposition, but I think it's true. And you you can just think about that practically, too. Like you guys, you just started this podcast how long ago? Nine years ago. And, wow. and so you didn't, have, you didn't have any institutional backing. You just no. decided to do yeah. it. You get 10 million yeah. downloads a month. Yeah. Okay, so you have this immense influence. It's like, yeah. That's right. That's what you have. Uh-huh. And that's the case for everyone. And people mm. think, well, I don't have any influence. It's like you're hiding your bushel under a light. You have a lot more bloody influence than you think. You, in fact, you have more than you want. That's what's so terrifying. Mm. Is that the things you do, man, they echo. So, so there's definitely a strong sense of urgency. The, scary, the yeah. scariest part of all this for me, in, uh, it reminds me of the talk you did at Dave Ramsey. Yeah. So Dave Ramsey was one of the favorite uh, favorite things I ever heard you talk about when you talked about the importance of what's going on with our children between the ages of like two and five mm-hmm. and and with play mm-hmm. and and that role that it has and we're finally seeing a generation of the, the iPhone generation grow up and to be teenage deprived, deprived of play and yeah. and that's yeah. it scares the shit out of me because mm-hmm. I have I, I have a four year old right now and I have friends that have kids my same age and I see how easily they adopt these behaviors of allowing the iPad to babysit oh, their child. Yeah. And heaven forbid, as another parent, you say anything. So it's like you don't want to step in and say you shouldn't be doing that because that's like the worst thing you could ever do to another parent, yeah, right? And yeah, they, so, yeah. but I'm watching this unfold and I really think that a, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about that we're fearful of is starting with these kids and what this content yeah. they're consuming. Not being and what socially integrated. Yeah, and what they're not doing socially. Like, Talk about that, because that talk, I think, is one of the most important talks I've ever heard you do. Well, kids learn between the ages of two and four. They learn to integrate beyond the confines of their own psyche, right? So a two-year-old basically is still self-obsessed, and they can't play with other kids. Now, what does it mean to play with someone else? It means that you... you, you, you negotiate a shared space of attention that that's what it means so if a boy wants to play house with a girl then he has to propose the game do you want to play house do you want to play tag like Mm -hmm. there'll be some offerings on the table and the first rule is the other person has to want to play and that that's a good rule for social conduct in general you know the narrative in our culture is that it's power that dominates everything but Mm -hmm. the alternative to that as far as i can tell is something like voluntary agreement yeah that's right okay so if the boy has a bit of sophistication he'll make some offerings to the girl about different games and she'll pick one or vice versa because the girl can make the offering too but the 
the, the crucial issues they both have to want to play. Okay, so now they've, they've decided, they've shrunk their world, we're going to play house. Okay, the next thing to do is to assign something like a role. So you can see that they're acting out a story, right? The story is long-term committed relationship, something like that. That's what it means to play house, establishing a household. And so then they have to accept a role, could be mother, could be father. Maybe they reverse the roles for the sake of the game, but they both have to agree on that. And then they're concentrating on the same thing, and that brings them into emotional alignment. Because if you and I are pursuing the same goal, our emotions go into sync. Because our positive emotions say we're progressing towards the goal, and our negative emotions say obstacles are in the way. And so if we have the same goal, we can now understand each other because our emotions align. That's how, that's how it works. So the kids construct a shared space, and then they play. And to play is to experiment, right? Well, what if I act like this? You know, maybe I've seen my dad raise his voice, or I've seen my dad tease, or and then the kids will act that out and see what happens. They'll watch how the girl reacts. Mm-hmm. And they, they want the girl to continue the game. But more than that, they want the girl to continue the game across multiple games. That's what happens when you have a friend. And so that's like a med- a friend is a meta game because a friend is someone you play multiple games with. And the basic rule of a friendship is don't muck up the friendship, right? <laughs> and you do certainly not to win any particular game. You can see kids will hurt each other's feelings if one of them cheats to win mm-hmm. an immediate game. And the cost of that is, well, it could be the friendship. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a stupid sacrifice. You're going to win one game and forego the opportunity to play 100 games. That's a stupid, obviously, that's counterproductive. Well, between the age of two and four, kids learn to play more and more sophisticated games and to bring more and more kids into the game. And that there's that just expands out into being socialized. And the kids who don't manage that by four, they're, they never manage it. They're alienated. Is and that so, because of the plasticity of the brain? And how no, it it's because the other kids ratchet up ahead of them. Oh. So, so what kids will do when two kids meet each other in a playground... They'll sort of engage in small talk like adults do. This is what you do at a party. You engage in small talk. Why? Well, you want to see if the person you're talking to can play a primitive game. At your level, right? At, at, well, at, the, at some level, right. at least. You say, well, how are you doing? Well, if that stumps the person, you think, <laughs> well, really? You think, okay, there's something. Yeah. If they're awkward and they can't manage that, you think, okay, you're not very sophisticated. And, yeah. and maybe... You might interact with them a bit, but you'll go find someone else to play with. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, or maybe you introduce yourself and you see if the person can say their name and shake hands. Like I had clients who couldn't do that. They'd been so not attended to. Mm. They had no friends. No mm. friends. Never. Say, well, how do you introduce yourself? Well, you know, they put their head down and they mumble their name and they put their hand out. It's like shaking a dead fish. And like, so what well, the first thing we would do is just practice the introduction. It's wow. like, no, wow. stand up. Yeah. watch the other person, match their tempo, grab their hand, but not too hard, but not like a dead fish. Say your name loud enough so they can hear it. And like, we practiced that. Some of the people I was with, we practiced that like 50 times oh till God. they got expert at it. But you imagine if you're, you're 30, you haven't had any friends your whole bloody life, and you don't even know how to introduce yourself. Like, how are you going to get out of that? Jordan, we... I, yeah. we uh, We've had the opportunity to meet a lot of people that are uh, Instagram or YouTube famous that have millions of followers. They have all this personality on the YouTube channel, and then you meet them in person. And it's that. 
and mm-hmm. they're th- and they can't look us and we meet them we're all excited those person looks like they got great person yeah. and they get in a room like this right and they do exactly what you said don't yeah. make eye contact don't even don't really introduce them something completely right. different right it's so they were wild. completely socialized for social media yes oh, wow. yeah yeah, well, the other thing that, that happens, this is what fathers can do for kids too, is a lot of that's embodied knowledge. So one of the things that young mammals really like, especially males, but females as well, is rough and tumble play. Mm-hmm. And that's embodied play, right? And so, and it, it's something you get better at if you work out too, because it, it, it integrates you. But in it, embodied play isn't just a matter of abstract knowledge, right? It's so, for example, when I meet people, after my lectures, I meet and greet, I meet about 150 people. And I did something of a study about how to make people comfortable when I first meet them, because you guys would know this from being coaches. You know, when someone first comes to, for help, they're on edge. They don't like admitting they need help or want it. They're embarrassed to be there. Mm -hmm. They're skeptical and they're looking for an excuse to run the hell away. Totally. Mm -hmm. So you have to make them comfortable as fast as you possibly can. And one of the things you can do is when I've learned this, I've really watched this because I've met like, I don't know, 150,000 people in the last six years, like a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Everybody who walks up to you will have a different tempo, Mm. right? So one of the things you do when you're reaching out to shake their hands is you match their tempo. And then you mirror it, yeah. And then they know know right away that you're integrated enough not to be obsessing about yourself Mm -hmm. when Mm. you're meeting them. And that gives them some confidence in you and that might not right? even be a conscious thought it's not yeah. conscious wow. it's all demonstrated in the gesture right so you reach hmm. out and then they'll they'll grip your hand in a particular way and some people very firmly and then you you return that some people less so and generally then you use a more firm handshake but you know you watch the person and you do what you can to make them put them at ease and that's embodied and part of the way that we develop that ability is by engaging in rough and tumble play when we're little and fathers play a huge role in that because they, when you're do, playing with a kid in rough and tumble play, you're stretching them out. You're pushing them to the limits of their pain. Yeah. You're, they're trying to, like, because the place where wrestling is fun is right on the edge of disaster. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's got to be intense. Otherwise it's boring. You got to find that's that right. fine you gotta, line. You find that fine line and that's where you play. You play on that fine line and every game is like that. You play Mm -hmm. on the fine line. What kids want when they're checking each other out, and this is what you do at a cocktail party too, is you you find someone, you start with small talk and you ratchet yourself up. You engage in more and more sophisticated Mm -hmm. interaction. If you find someone that you can play with, then you'll talk to them. You know, Mm -hmm. the conversation gets interesting right away. And so, and you're playing, you're playing to push yourself further along the pathway of development. Yeah. That's very, the right kind of game. Very important, especially, I mean, both with your boys and girls, but even with your girls, uh, it teaches them what safe touch is Absolutely. from a man yeah. and what unsafe, and you, yeah. the way they and learn how to is- defend themselves. Girls with brothers are much less likely to be raped, not because they have brothers, but because they've learned from wow. a very, right, exactly. Well, they've, look, I had clients in my practice who were always getting into sexual trouble, girls, Always. Like, you couldn't put them anywhere without something untoward happening to Mm. them. And I watched to see, and the reason for that is they didn't know how to say no. And like, sophisticated girls say no so subtly that 
it goes unnoticed. Sure. It's just that nothing happens, right? Yeah, and so oh, that's right. unnoticed. Whereas these, I'll, I'll give you an example. I had one, one client who, um, she was very lonesome and a reasonably attractive girl, but very, very troubled. And a delivery man came to her door. You know, like, a, like it's the plot of 3,000 pornography <laughs> movies, right? It's like pizza delivery yeah, guy yeah. shows up to hot girls. I've got door. something for you. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly, exactly. So that pizza sort of guy. fantasy is lurking in the back of the minds of like delivery men all the time. Mm. And she invited this guy in, which is like, that's a mistake, right? right away. Because, you know, I'm not ragging on delivery men. It's an important job. And now he comes to the door and this girl's being real friendly to him and invites him in. And like, things didn't go well, put it mm -hmm. that way. Well, why? Well, maybe she shouldn't have even opened the bloody door. Like she should have known how to say no, but she had no idea. She mm. had no idea how to act out no. And she'd been hyper sheltered, right? Mm. So And they learned that from older brothers, from their fathers. Yeah, from, yeah, wow. yeah. From from their boy from their brother's friends. From playing, from playing with Wrestling. boys. So I think at the beginning of time, I, mean, I think we've always had parents that probably missed this a little bit, right? That maybe they, the dad was so busy at work and the mom was busy doing her thing. And so the kids, but at least, you know, say 25 plus years ago, the kids would have to probably with their imagination, create yeah. things with rocks and toys yeah. and figure it out. We're now we're replacing that. Yeah. With the, so I feel like it's, it's not it's the content, it's the replacement. Yes. Wow. So I yeah. feel like it's far more, because that's had to happen, right? There had yeah. to been a kid who didn't get the, the right play 25 years yeah. ago too. Yeah. But more than likely that kid didn't get an iPad or uh, something like that. Yeah. He was yeah. probably well, playing. And they were also, they were also much more likely to have siblings yeah. right. to play with. Mm -hmm. And also much more likely to have opportunities to play with other kids without mm. the screens. Like when I had my kids, it wasn't uncommon. I had the, uh, Tammy and I were the youngest parents with the oldest kids among the group that I associated with at Harvard. And we weren't that young. We were like 30. You know, that's not that young to start a family. But we would bring our kids over to the houses of other people with kids. And the first thing they would do is put on a movie. It's like, no, throw the kids in the basement <laughs> yeah. and leave them alone them because they'll, after they're, let them figure it out. They'll, that's right. There has to be some deprivation so that they can start using their imagination and play. And what they're doing is producing social microcosms, right? It's, and, 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 and learning how to get along with other people they don't know, learning how to play together. And I see a lot of the pathology that we see on university campuses looks to me like all this identity confusion. It looks to me like delayed fantasy play. Wow. You know? Wow. Well, the cosplay and all that sort of thing that's oh, become 100%. a percent. Yeah, yeah. It's delayed play. Wow. You know, talk a little bit about, so I'll tell you a story first to kind of illustrate where I'm going here. But years ago, I had a friend of mine who uh, opened some restaurants and he was giving me a tour around them. And so he's taking me around and he's introducing me to everybody. And this is John, this is Mike, this is whatever. And he goes, and this, this is nine. And then he's going through and I said, nine, that's kind of an interesting name. <laughs> So I go back and I looked at the guy and I said, he doesn't look German. I think that's a German. I said, are you German? And he goes, no. I said, your name is nine. And so then my buddy goes, hey, nine, show him why we call you nine. He lifted his hands and he was missing a finger. Okay. Yeah. So that's his nickname. Yeah. And, uh, and I heard you talk about this with men, like the friendships that men have, like the way we tease each other mm -hmm. is such a different level with the, mm -hmm. than what girls tend to do. We tend to be very mean. We tend to check each other, but 
there's something important there. And I've heard you talk mm. about this before. I think you told the story of somebody showing up to a construction job with a paper bag, mm. you know, paper lunch. And yeah, yeah. His nickname yeah. became, I don't remember what it was, yeah. paper lunch bucket. bucket. Lunch bucket. Yeah, yeah, well, he had a lunch. He, had, he, didn't, have a, he didn't have a paper bag. <laughs> That's, That's what, what he was supposed to have. Okay. He had oh. nicely packed lunch that his mother had made for him, which was fine. You have to make except fun of that. He, well, yeah, yeah, and then you have to accept the joke. Yeah. And he didn't accept the joke, and things didn't go well for him. Yeah, yeah well, what men do quickly in in especially working men groups, especially if it's a high-stress environment, is they check the other people out to see if they have any capacity for play and for emotional resilience. Mm. It's like, I'll poke you. <laughs> yeah. And why? Well, I want to see what happens if you're stressed a bit. Well, why? Well, because we might encounter a stressful situation, and I want to see if, like, are you going to be there or not? Can you handle it? Can yeah. you handle it? Exactly, exactly. And if that's done well, it's rough, but it's fun. And if it's not done well, then it just goes sideways in no time flat. And the way to make it go sideways is for someone to come up and make a joke at your expense that's a bit rough and then to get all peeved about it. Yeah. And then you're just screwed because yeah. someone else will say, you, you like irritate irritate the onlookers yeah. and they'll think, ah, yeah, is that right? Eh? How about this? Yeah. And then it just goes. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of a gender difference there, right? Because yeah. uh, like if you look at like uh, pranks that boys will do versus, I told my daughter, my daughter, she's 14 and- she just got this boyfriend and, and you know, they were going to do these pranks. I said, don't get in a prank war with a boy because they go to the 15th level, <laughs> right. you know? So it, what's the difference? Is, is there a difference between the genders when it comes to th what we just talked about, the nicknames and the, the poking, or is that uh, the same? There's across? not a lot of difference before puberty. Okay. But there's a substantial difference after that. You know, and we probably understand more about how boys play than about how girls play. Really? You know, well, yes, girls are more... They're more covert in their interactions. They're certainly more covert in their aggression. Boys' aggression tends to be pretty obvious, and it tends to be physical, or the kind of rough joking that mm. we're describing. Women, women are brutal in, in terms of the aggressive tactics they use. They're much more likely to use reputation savaging yeah. and exclusion. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. And the, one of the advantages to being a boy is that you can just have a fight, and that's the end of it, you know, mm. and... and that happens fairly regularly among boys and among teenagers as well. It gets less and less frequent as men get older and older. But girls don't have that advantage. And so there's often no limit to the amount of psychological torment they can, mm. they can employ with one another. And part of what's happening in the modern world too is that that feminine pattern of aggression, which is reputation savaging and exclusion and denigration, mobbing, that scales brilliantly on social media. Yeah, I was just going to oh, ask. Yeah, yeah. 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 Whereas the other and, kind is... Well, you can't punch someone on Twitter, even though you desperately need to. <laughs> so, yeah. the, what are what are the consequences of not having that? You know, Justin always jokes around. He makes this joke that we need to bring bullies back, and he makes yeah, a right. joke about it because <laughs> he says there's not enough people who it's get not the most in the populous yeah. campaign. But yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, the Simpsons did a great job of that because Nelson Muntz he was a very complicated bully, and he was definitely an agent of social order. Oh yeah, when, when, he corrected when, quite yeah, a few. He correct. Yeah. That's right. He yeah. was a corrective. That's yeah. right. And disagreeable men are correctives. You know, they set limits. Right. They set limits on a kind of. What, what kind of stupidity do they, kind of a blind, dependent, they set a real limit on dependent stupidity, right? Because the, the more aggressive guys, you can remember this from high school, have nothing but contempt for, for boys who are dependent, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's like, grow up. Yeah, the mama's right? You know, boy. you have to go run to the teacher, do you? Right. And that's a perfectly reasonable objection, yeah. you know? Can you settle this yourself or do you have to run to the teacher? Well, if you run to the teacher, you're a mama's boy, which is exactly right, because you can't handle your own 
your own mm-hmm. disputes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, 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 that rough bullying behavior can go too far and it frequently mm-hmm. does. And the more bully like boys don't do that well as they mature, right? It becomes less and less productive as a strategy yeah. as they get older and older. Uh, but I almost feel like the, not the action as much, but the threat of potential mm. physical action mm. is a, is a, is a check. It is a check. You yeah. need, I mean, I remember once being in the car with my girlfriend, somebody cut me off yeah. and she decided to flip the guy off and oh, yell yeah. at him. And I remember thinking, if he gets out of the car, <laughs> I'm the one that's going to get What's your desired outcome here? Yeah. And yeah. I had to have yeah. the explanation with her. Yeah. It's like, you know, I don't flip someone off unless I'm okay with unless what I mean might it. potentially yeah. happen. Right, right, you know? absolutely. And social media has eliminated that. Yeah, completely. yeah, yeah. Well, and I think we don't know exactly what keeps the psychopathic bullies at bay, but mm. one of the things that keeps them at bay is definitely like tough men who will give them a slap. Mm. And so, mm-hmm. out in the real world where that's a real thing, the psychopathic, narcissistic cowards tend to shut the hell up mm. online zero constraint and i think this is a i think this is a real problem because we're producing a virtual world that's overlaid on the actual world Mm. but the rules in the virtual world aren't the same and that means the virtual world is delusional Mm. and because if you have a representation of the world in your imagination that doesn't correspond to the actual world then you're delusional yeah okay one of the delusions that saturated the social media, the virtual space, is that you can get away with being a dependent narcissistic psychopath. Mm. And the problem with that is that historically, when those people have got the upper hand, everything collapses. Because they're like they're the burn it all to the ground sorts of resentful creatures. It's not good that they have free reign on on social media. Mm-hmm. It's really not good. And vir- the virtual world seems to enable, I think virtual worlds enable psychopaths. Mm-hmm. And that's not good. I feel like the best check for that in the social media world is just open debate and discussion. You, you, you got to let them mm-hmm. at least get checked by ideas, but we've seen that get censored so often yep. or shut down. Yeah, well, we and it's shut down by the same sort of people mm. who scream and yell and, and have temper tantrums mm-hmm. and claim to be compassionate while they're being nothing but narcissistic and who can't tolerate. You shouldn't offend yeah, anyone. Yeah. It's like, well... Yeah. no one yeah. about anything do, ever do you have any worries about like what you're trying to do with it getting silenced along the way like okay well maybe youtube doesn't want us to say this and maybe the do you well, think I about have that been sa- like youtube has mostly left me alone they censored uh talk i did with helen joyce on the transgender phenomenon and also one with robert f kennedy which was shocking to me because he's in the midst of a presidential election that's right i oh, couldn't yeah. believe youtube would shut down a discussion with a presidential contender like mm-hmm. and that that's not a scandal mm-hmm. um i got kicked off twitter by yoel roth and his team of absolute bloody narcissistic psychopaths and mm-hmm. so that was annoying um and there's been no shortage of journalists who've you know attempted to savage my reputation mm-hmm. most of them female but not all not always and with some success but no long-term success luckily for me you know, and that's partly because I didn't apologize. <laughs> yeah. how, how, what's, what's the prediction? What do you think is going to happen with Elon and Twitter? Do you, what, do you think this is going to be a, a great rivalry going to see? Do you think something's going to happen? What do you think is going to unfold with Twitter? Well, Twitter is such a snake pit. Like, it isn't obvious to me that it's salvageable. Now, hmm. Elon is an extraordinarily intelligent and able person. And so, and I think he's made Twitter 
better than it was. But, you know, Twitter might be an unplayable game, right? I mean, we don't know. You, you set up a, it's a new social, it's a new form of social organization. It has weird, untested rules. Like, everybody gets to talk to everybody no matter what. Yeah. Well, look, part of the reason that you have a house is so that it has walls mm. and it has a door. And the reason you have a door is so that any lunatic on the street can't come in and yell at you. And Twitter is a place where any lunatic can come in off the street and not only yell at you, but yell simultaneously at you to everyone you know. Mm. Well, it's not obvious at all that that's a playable game. It, it might just partly because it enables... That's such an interesting thought. Yeah. It's it enables people who have no social power to have social power. Right. Now, Gives generally, a there's a reason you don't have social power. Like, if no one's listening to... If no one at all is listening to you when you're 30, you're either very, very unlucky, and that does happen to people, or there's a reason no one's listening to you. And then you can go on Twitter, and a million people can listen to you. And it's probably the case that a million people shouldn't be listening to those people that couldn't get anyone to listen to them, right? right? Mm -hmm. It's not good. It, it's a, you know, we thought we'd democratize the public square. It's like, well, have we democratized the public square or have we turned it over to the mob? Yeah. And I would say we've turned it over to the mob. That's a really interesting yeah. thought. Yeah, and that's I've never thought of it like that. Yeah, how do we figure that out? It's uh, it's never existed in human history. No, so well, we don't have a, does it just cannibalize We don't itself. have a blueprint. Well, it could easily, yes. there, there, are, there have been online games where that happened, right? Huge multiplayer games that just collapsed because mm. they're, you could say because their constitutional framework wasn't sufficient. Or you mm. could say because the story they were inhabiting wasn't self-sustaining. And so they just, they just turn into chaos. Mm. And, and there's no reason to assume that Twitter won't do that or Facebook won't do that. Like we have no idea. And Twitter's also weird because of the way it started, had that 140 character limit. Right. Okay. So what would humans be like if they could only speak in 140 <laughs> character bursts and they had no social hierarchy? Because that's what the experiment is. Wow. And well, what happens is, well, I think what happens is that it enables the psychopaths. That's what happens. Wow. And that you don't want a platform and anonymity does that too. Yeah. You know, and I've been fulminating against anonymity online for quite a long time because I think you should have the courage of your convictions. I think that the worst in people is brought out by anonymity. You know, and the anonymous people say, well, I, I, I can't say what I really think because I'd have to suffer the repercussions. It's like, yeah, maybe you're morally obligated to suffer the repercussions of what you say. Maybe that's part of being a citizen, is that you have to take... I, I know that people can pay a disproportionate price for their opinion. But I would say, if you utter an opinion that you believe to be valid and true, and you pay a disproportionate price for it, then that's evidence that your culture has become corrupted in a way that you should do something about. Well, see, You shouldn't be able to just hide and you know get around that somehow. You have to face it. Yeah. Yeah. See, someone listening right now, you're the perfect person to say this because you have suffered tremendous pressure and consequences for voicing what you believe to be what, what I largely agree with to be true. How have you dealt with that? Because I can't imagine the stress that you've had to, since day one. Like you went from professor to all over the place and um, 
although you've had a tremendous amount of support. I've been to a few yeah. of your events and it's all extremely positive. I've never seen yeah, a well, single most, negative person. No, no, no. Well, most of the negativity is online. Mm. Like almost all of it. Do you in just the ignore it? World. It's just like our no, experience. No, you no. Know, you meet people in, in person yeah. and you get the people that How much is it artificial? Right, yeah. right. What's that? How much of it is artificial, do you think, in well, terms of Well, I, I, I think that's a good question. I think virtually all of it is artificial. I think that the people who are oppose me, so to speak, actively, are a tiny, tiny minority. Yeah. Like maybe maybe one in a hundred, something like that. And they're disproportionately overrepresented online. And the reason I think that is because I just don't ever have any trouble in the actual world. Like, you know, right. sometimes, right. and I have security people, and there's a reason for that, but it's very, very rare. And so, and in terms of paying a price, well, when things first blew up around me in relationship to the first political act I took, I suppose, which was opposing the the uh, bill was it C? bill C sixteen right that made it mandatory to use someone's preferred pronouns right compelled Which, speech compelled speech yes um, that was that wasn't pleasant because certainly my my university job was immediately threatened and hmm. had I not maneuvered extremely carefully I would have been fired you could have lost everything well I would have lost that and my clinical practice was threatened and at the time too. When all that happened, the Canadian Revenue Agency was also on my back for a mistake they had made. Yeah, so I had the goddamn government, IRS equivalent in Canada, on my back Mm. in quite a major way. They eventually apologized and realized it was a mistake they'd made. It's like, thanks, guys. That was six (laughs) months of bloody hell right when I needed it the least. And my university job was under siege. And my reputation was on the line. And my clinical practice was threatened well permanently threatened i mean i had to close up my clinical practice and i had stopped being a professor fundamentally and so yeah that was that was a lot no doubt about it but look man maybe there is no way i was going to continue to be a professor and not say what i thought like why would you want to be a professor and not say what you the only reason to be a professor is because you can teach people what you believe to be true it's a fool's game otherwise. Like, if you're smart, you can make a lot more money than you can being a professor. Like, if it's just a matter of, <laughs> yeah. of you know, oh, career yeah. success. And, well, it was the same with being a therapist, is the only thing you have to offer your clients as a therapist is the truth. And so once that's compromised, the game's over, fundamentally, and you might as well just admit it. Now, I was fortunate. I had three sources of income, and two of them were threatened. The third wasn't. You know, and you might say, well, that puts you in a unique position. But what I would say about that is, no, no, I put myself in that position. You know, and like I had dealt with people who had been in trouble a lot in my clinical practice. And I saw what you do to make sure that you're standing on firm ground. Mm. And one of the things you do is make sure that you're standing on firm ground. You know, so when the university came after me, I could think I knew this from doing negotiations helping my clients through tricky negotiations. Like the first thing you do if you're negotiating in a difficult situation is you make sure that the person that opposes you can't take anything away from you that you wouldn't give up because mm. they'll threaten you. I'll take away this. It's like, fuck yeah, you. It. Yeah. Here it is. Well, then what do they do? You know, if you're willing to give it up, the power that the other party has over you immediately disappears. And, you, you know, you might say in favor of what? And the answer is, well, in favor of whatever happens next. 
you know, mm-hmm. the upside is, is that it's been crazily interesting. And I would say this is something I've been trying to teach people too, is that why tell the truth? Well, it's a really good long-term strategy. It's the only good long-term strategy. But the other advantage is the more you tell the truth, the more crazy and interesting things will happen to you. Oh, wow. It's dangerous. <laughs> mm, it's, it is. It, yeah. it is. And it's partly because you have to give things up. Like, you know, if you're talking to someone and you want to impress them, then there's all sorts of places you won't go and things you won't say because you don't want to sacrifice that, right? But, and then maybe you'll impress them to get whatever the hell it is that you want, but then that's what you'll get it, if you're fortunate and it works. Sure. The problem with that is, well, maybe that's not the best thing you could have got. Maybe the best thing you could have got was whatever would have happened if you would have just said what you thought. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a very interesting game to play. It's like, oh, I'll just tell you what I think. Yeah. And we'll see what happens. I love it when that's you way more interesting. Honesty. I love that's it honesty. way more interesting. I love yeah. it when you say, "And what the hell do you know?" When I, I've heard you say that so many times, and I, <laughs> and I remind myself that's true. I don't yeah. know what yeah, I really well, want. That's the that's the basis of a genuine humility. It's like don't be thinking that you got this. Yeah, maybe you do. Like possibly, and maybe maybe better than you did yesterday. But a better theory is well, let's see what happens. Mm. And this is also an article of faith, you know. But one article of faith is that you should abide by the truth. And then the question is, well, why? If you can get what you want by lying, so you can get out of a responsibility or you can gain something you didn't earn, why not do it? It's a question every child faces. Sure. Well, the right answer to that is, well, what, it, what the hell do you know about what you want? <laughs> it's like, maybe you will get what you want, but then you're staking yourself on the claim that you knew what would be best for you. The alternative is to say, no, and I do believe this to be right. Whatever happens to you if you tell the truth is the best thing that could have happened. doesn't matter how it looks. That's, the, that's an article of faith. It's like, because maybe you tell the truth to your wife and it's really rough, right? You have a big fight. Maybe you're, Christ, you're not getting along for two months and the whole bloody relationship is shaking. You think, well, that was a big mistake. It's like, but then maybe a year later you think, yeah, that was the best thing that could have possibly happened because things play out over different time scales, you know, and the truth is a long-term game. It's not a short-term game. Mm. Speaking of wives, uh, your, your wife has got to be incredible support. Uh, you know, for what you do. What was that like when you were going through that and you were going home and you're like, hey, I said this and now I'm getting all this heat. And what was that? What's that like at my home My family's for you? been like rock solid. And, and my, you know, I've had some trouble with some of the people I know, but my close friends and my extended family, they've been like 100% behind me right from the beginning. Wow. Well, those videos that I first launched against Bill C-16, I'd, I'd been putting videos online on YouTube, my lectures and so yeah. on, starting to experiment with it. This was back, I started about 2013 when YouTube was just, you know, a new thing and no one knew what the hell it was. And uh, I'd been talking to, I had more and more clients in my clinical practice who were there because they were being bullied by social justice warriors. At oh. one point, it was like 25% of my clinical wow. practice thought something weird is going on here. And then the university, well, the Bill, Bill C-16 came out at the same time the university was imposing these idiot DEI restrictions and, and trying to educate clinicians and psychologists about psychological realities and everybody was just swallowing it it was like really starting to grate on me and i came downstairs my wife and my son were sitting at the kitchen table and i said i've been really thinking about making a video about this new bill and about what's happening at the university what do you think and they said i think my wife said 
Go ahead. You've been talking about it long enough. <laughs> she said, I'm sure she Out said, with it. What, yeah. could, what could happen? <laughs> What's the worst? Yeah, yeah. But, but my wife is very adventurous, you know, mm. and, and which is part of the reason I was attracted to her to begin with. It's like she's, she's in for an adventure, that woman. And, you know, when some absolutely absurd offer comes our way, you know, like we were invited to Israel um, now, like to go in the next month wow, to go wow. visit okay. various places cultural groups and so forth in Israel. And, you know, her attitude was, yes. Now, I don't think I'm going to do it because I have to finish a book I'm writing at the moment. But when an adventure presents itself to my wife, who's a very sensible person, her attitude is almost invariably yes. The only thing that ever interferes with that, I would say, is that the adventures take her away from her grandkids and Mm, and her kids. And, you know, that, that, and that's something that has to be managed, right? Because we don't want to, never see her kids or her grandkids, but she's, she's behind me and vice versa. You know, like it's we're we've got each other's backs and we always did when we had kids too. We have a very solid. I love that relationship. And it's a a playful relationship too. What's, what's the difference between uh, being a father and being a grandfather? Cause now you have grandkids. What's that? What's the difference? My, My mom, when I had my kids, my mom said, you know, I loved my kids, but I love my grandkids more almost she's like it's almost like I, I i get to redo this again and i feel so much more wise and it's yeah. just so much more joyful and you know i you get to give them back on the hard times yeah there's always that <laughs> yeah, joke right right right, right, right. What's, what's the difference been like for you you know being a grandfather versus a father well one of the things that well tammy and i were very sick when our grandkids were little and so that was rough because we didn't get to know them as much as we could have but 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 it is, it is like a chance to revisit the best of having kids again. Mm. And so that's, and it's very fun to watch your kids turn into parents too, you know. Oh, that's got to be great. Well, it's good to see them mature because it is the case that children mature people. It's very hard to become mature without having a child. And I think the reason for that is you're not mature until someone else matters more than you, like unquestioningly. You know, and maybe you've got that with your wife and there might be some other special people in your life that, you know, are more important than you are, but for sure that happens with your kids. If it doesn't, you're a narcissist, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so it's very good to see, it's good to see my kids put that cap on their maturity and to see my son turn into a very competent father and my daughter too. They've done a very good job with their kids. And so, and then like, I love being around little kids. I'm really good at playing with them. And so it's fun having my grandkids around because I can torture them and torment them, bounce them around and tease them. And, and I've always, my dad was very good with little kids. And I think I learned uh, what my mother was as well, but it, it, it was, my dad's kind of a rough guy. He's a tough guy, but he has a real soft spot for little kids. And he was really good with little kids. Mm. And so I learned to be comfortable with little kids very early on. And I really like having them around. And so it's great. And when I had my own little kids, like I would rather spend time with my family. This is another thing about being tied down. It's like whenever I had a choice by the time I was like 30, when, when we first had our kids, if it, if, if I had a choice between going to a social event or going to hang out with my kids, it's like, there's no question. Yeah. They're fun. Why the hell wouldn't you? <laughs> right. Well, yeah. if you're smart enough not to let them be annoying, <laughs> you know, well, really, it's like, <laughs> if you're annoyed by your kids, then stop them. It's not good for them for you to be annoyed with them. Mm-hmm. They need you. And 
And this is, you see this sort of tension often between mothers and fathers, because fathers are more likely to set limits and boundaries, and that intimidates women, especially if they don't trust men. And the price of that is if your children aren't well-regulated in their behavior, they're annoying. And if they're annoying, then you sort of have, you're sort of with them grudgingly. And then they pick that up. It's awful. It's awful. It's mm. way better just to, like, quit that. You know, <laughs> go sit on the steps till you're civilized and come back and play. You know, and that's way better. And it's not that hard. You have to put up with some momentary emotional disruption, but it's usually a relief to the kids too. You know, they... Kids push you yeah. because they want to see Testing. where the boundary is right. and they want to see where the boundary is so they're not terrified, yeah. right? Because they don't want to have the whole world in front of them. No. They no. want to have this much space that they can master. And so you put a limit on and they're like, oh, okay, got it. Yeah. Mm. I can play inside those walls. Yeah. That's great. How, how often do you, you and your, I guess your kids and grandkids, how often do you guys get together? Oh, Let's see, how often are we getting together now? Well, I'm, I'm here, I'm visiting Michaela now, and we'll be here for about two months, so I'll get to see That's my great. granddaughter, her, her daughter, for much of that time. We already had a very good time this morning. I was throwing her up in the air in the pool as high as I can <laughs> throw her, which she really likes. And she's, my favorite meme that was at the Ark was the, the who put that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Warren Farrell. Warren Farrell. Yeah, he'd be Matt, a good guy for you guys to interview. Yeah. Oh, you have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's a funny story. He was on the same plane. We were talking about the event, and he hears us, and he turns around, and he goes, oh, you're going, you're going to Ark? We're like, yeah. Warren? Yeah. Yeah. He's been on our sh- he was on our show years ago, yeah. and we were talking about how, but uh, he's, he has such an important message, but he's so yep. soft-spoken. I, yeah. I wish yeah. he had a little more authority. Yeah. And well, he's a good guy to deliver the message, though, because yeah. he has impeccable yeah. leftist progressive. Yes. Um, um, he comes from the background of that. Yeah, he yeah. does. Yeah. He does. And so he's he's a very good person to be talking about what he's talking about because it's hard for the progressive types to shunt him off into a corner as, you know, like a mm-hmm. right-wing fascist. Right, he like, led the feminist yeah, movement, yeah. right? <laughs> well, yeah, Warren Farrell is not a right-wing fascist. <laughs> so, and, and he's he's very, and he's an impressive person too because he wouldn't have got involved with the National Organization of Women if his temperament didn't tilt him into the sort of progressive camp. Yeah. But he looked at the data, you know, and that's what, that's what put him on the pathway that he's on now. He looked at the facts in a, in a manner that was truly scientific and decided that, no, there was something going on that was wrong. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so he's a very effective advocate for, for men and boys, and that's extremely mm-hmm. important. You know, you guys were saying earlier, you know, as the decades have progressed, especially on television, we went from Father Knows Best and My Three Sons, where the father was <laughs> like the, and, and Leave It to Beaver, where the father was the admirable head of the household, to, mm-hmm. you know, the absolutely bumbling stupidity of virtually every man on an ad yeah. or in a sitcom. And, you know, it's fine to satirize and, and to poke fun, but in a manner that's contemptuous, that starts to, that starts to become pathological. And a lot of that shift was shift in the direction of contempt. And you don't want to be contemptuous of men who are striving to do their best by the family. That's a, that's stupid. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a terrible a big thing. Mis- it's a terrible. terrible thing. Do you think this is the result of just, uh, just, I guess, terrible narratives, or do you think there's something a little bit more, uh, I don't know uh, how you would put it. Do you Insidious? think that someone's driving this? Like, well, we need to get this. We can't underestimate the impact of the birth control pill. Because okay. the birth control pill, the best way to think of the birth control pill is that it's a, it's equivalent to a species altering genetic mutation. It's, it's a major transformation because 
for the first time in history, women had voluntary control over their reproductive function. And that's just not something that any females had ever managed in the history of life. Like, it's a big deal. And so, you know, the Daily Wire put out that uh, documentary, What is a Woman? Think, well, why are we asking that? How preposterous. But the reason we're asking that is because once the birth control pill exists, the question of what is a woman actually becomes the question. It's like, because now a woman before the birth control pill and a woman after, they're not the same creature. And so now the question is, well, what is this new creature? And one answer is, well, they're just the same as men. You know, they can have sex the same way men can. They can pursue careers the same way men can. All the temperamental differences between men and women can vanish because they're just socialized. They're just constructs. They're not real. Women are just men for all intents and purposes. Well, that's, it's possible that that was true, but it isn't true because women differ from men in all sorts of ways. They're more interested in people and less interested in things, right? They differ in temperament. They're more agreeable and they're higher in negative emotion. They're physically smaller, right? They, there's all sorts of patterns of perception and inclination that make women differ from men. And, but we don't understand them very well. For example, we don't understand, it's like, well, if a woman is free to choose, what will she choose? Does she choose family? Does she choose career? Well, it's only been three generations since the birth control pill hit the streets. It's not surprising we're still sorting this out. Women don't exactly know because they never needed to know. Life just unfolded, and now it's a matter of voluntary choice. And here's a question, like, now that you can decide to have children or not, do you decide to have children mm. or do you just not do it? And if you have children, well, how many and when? Well, the answer to that question is no one knows. Now, and so we're stumbling along trying to figure it out. Now, my sense is, my observation has been, and I think I just watched, I, I've worked in female-dominated professions my whole life. And so, and by the time I entered the workforce, women were overrepresented in my field of endeavor, so there was no male domination of psychology. Like, that's just never been a thing. And so I've watched women, and my observation has been, it's a rare woman who doesn't have relationship and family at the center of her attentional focus by the time she's 30, and in an increasingly insistent manner. And that, it doesn't matter how stellar their career. And I can give you a good example of this. So I saw this in academia, you know, but the place I saw it most clearly, I spent 10 years working as a consultant to law firms in Toronto. So our deal was, we, we went out to the big law firms, and Canada... Toronto has Bay Street, which is the Canadian equivalent of Wall Street, and it's where the biggest law firms in Canada sit. And Canada has a big financial um, economy, financial services economy. And so the lawyers in Toronto compete at the same level as some of the lawyers in New York and Chicago, let's say. So it's a high-end enterprise. Mm -hmm. Now, great lawyers are rare because to be a great lawyer, you have to be a master of the details but you have to be able to go out and sell. So those are called those rainmakers, and that's what how they're known in 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 the high end firms. And if you have a rainmaker, you want to keep them because they make you a fortune. They go out and drum up business. Plus, they can do the legal work. Most lawyers can do the legal work. 
a small subset of them who can do the legal work can sell. Mm. And those are like, those people are like hyper valuable. And so if a law firm has someone like that, they do everything they can to keep them. Okay. And so half of them are women. Well, so what happens? Well, what happens is that the big law firms lose all their women around between 28 and 32, Mm. all of them, because the women decide. So if you're at the top of your game as a lawyer, you're going to be working like working 60 hours a week, you know, and anybody at the top end of their profession, they're not working 40 hours. They're working like 60, sure. 80 hours and they're working too. It isn't like I'm at work. It's like every, I had a woman who, one of my clients, she was a consultant for Deloitte. She bought a microwave so she could shave 15 seconds off the time it took her to heat up her coffee in the morning. <laughs> like that's how, that's how attentive she was to the details of her schedule. She had three kids and a husband and she was managing that plus this incredibly intense career. All the women bailed out between 28 and 32. And the reason for that was they kept climbing the corporate hierarchy till they got to be full partners at these big firms. And then they were working like these 60 to 80 hour weeks and they were looking around thinking, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. Now men will do it partly because status for men and socioeconomic status, it's a huge part of the game. There's nothing that makes a man more attractive to women than productive generosity, like socioeconomic status. It is the biggest predictor of male attractiveness by a huge margin. It's correlated at zero with female attractiveness. Mm -hmm. Like men don't care and women care about almost nothing else. That's not that cut and dried, but it's close. So men have this additional motivational driver to be hyper competitive but the women they hit 30 and they think why in the world am i working 80 hours a week they're often married to men who make plenty of money so the money doesn't matter not really and so they all quit and they go find a nine to five job or even a part-time job and then they want to pursue family and children and why wouldn't they because like who said that career is the defining Mm -hmm. goal of your life, a corporate career. And it's so weird that it's the bloody progressives that push this. It's like, okay, guys, I thought you thought capitalism was like a power mad, oppressive (laughs) endeavor. And yet you're pushing this. Yeah, it's like, but but women should do nothing but have a career. Really, that's Mm. your theory. Like, I don't get, I don't understand that at all. But I also don't think that that, it doesn't work out for women. It it just, that isn't how, that isn't how the world lays itself out. Not at all. And the sad part about it is, and I've watched this unfold in my own family. Um, my wife's, they basically, the my mother-in-law is like the matriarch of the family. The, the, she married a terrible man, alcoholic, oh, abusive. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. so, and she's done an incredible job of keeping everyone together. But part of their story or narrative of these girls all coming up is you don't need a man. Right. You can do this yourself. Yeah. And, yeah. and they saw that firsthand, how strong yeah. their mother was. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, and that was an attractive quality that I saw in my wife, that she was independent and yeah. she was strong. Yeah. But it was such a strong narrative that you see even the, the nieces that are uh, grew up in that and now i'm watching them very very successful they have their master's degree and they've, they're making two hundred thousand dollars a year yeah. but they're landing that 30 32 years old now and yep. just starting to play the dating serious game yep. and then there's late. like this and there is a short window yeah. it's like it's, it's like the pool is yeah. very well, small well, it's t- well here's what happens to women in that situation it's awful it's awful first of all the number of men they'll find accessible acceptable 
drops to virtually zero because you need, here's what you need. You're 30, you're a 30 year old woman. Let's say you're attractive and you're smart and you're career oriented and you're making lots of money. Okay. So what sort of man are you after? Well, you're after a man who's likely a little older than you, say 34, who isn't already in a permanent relationship, which is like, well, why is that? And yeah. who, who is that? Yeah. Cause that guy's going to get snapped up. Who's just as educated as you or more so who's making just as much money as you or more so it's like, well, there aren't any guys like that. There's two guys. Like, yeah, that's right. There's <laughs> two guys. Pe- or they got Peter yep. Pan syndrome, right? Yeah, right. He's right. Down. Or, but it's worse than that because the men, let's say you are that 32-year-old man. Okay, now you've got your choice. You've got 30-year-old woman who's like spectacularly attractive and smart and independent and all that, but she's 30. And you've got 25-year-old woman who's the same, yeah. except she's 25. Well, all the tilt is going to be towards the 25-year-old, yeah. not least, especially if you're not ready to adopt responsibility because the 25-year-old woman gives you a seven-year, what would you call it? Uh, it's a seven-year span of flexibility. Yeah. Whereas the 30-year-old woman is going to be, you date her, you marry her, you have yeah. a child. Right like now. now yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, no, that doesn't, that's not going to work. Mm. It's not going to work. Partly you have to ask, well, why would the guys do that? Because they could go for the 25-year-old, mm-hmm. which they will. And also the 25-year-old's an easier target, so to speak, not as intimidating. A lot of the women that I worked with, they never even got asked out because yeah. they were so intimidating. Yeah. The guys would look at them and think, oh, well, I don't have a chance with her. Like, mm-hmm. And even if that wasn't true, that's what they thought. Yeah, very mm-hmm. triggering for some people to hear this, but you're, you're literally like, this is just how it is. Did, did, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. I watched this for 10 years. And I, you know, the women- Everybody would, knows this. Women listening know this. No, they know this. They don't want to date a man that makes less, you typically makes less than them, is lower status, less education. They want someone above them, typically. Oh, yes. In that, that sense. And that's, that's cross-culturally the case. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and no wonder. Like why, if you're a high resource woman, why wouldn't you look for a higher resource man? Right. Like that's a better deal. Yeah. So of course you do that. It's been, and it's partly because- why do we, why you know gold diggers? It's like no, the woman's going to put herself in a vulnerable position by having kids. Fact. So she's going to be looking for someone who can tolerate the fact that she's going to be in a vulnerable position. So obviously she's going to look for someone who Has can resources. bring more to the table than she can. Obviously, right. So yeah, it's so pathetic. Yeah. We're so dumb, <laughs> and it's so hard on. Well, it's so hard on young women too. Yeah. And I mean, they do have a difficult needle to thread because you if you're going to be educated as a woman and have a family and kids you really have to get your act together fast in about an eight year span of time and that's not that long you know the other thing people don't really understand is that you know let's say you're young and attractive and you think well i'll eventually find a partner it's like you're probably only going to really be able to try out about five people in your life right because imagine imagine it takes a year to get to know someone yeah you know, maybe it's six months, but six months and then engaged, that's pretty fast, especially if you didn't know the person at all. Right. So let's say a year. Well, how many people are going to come along at the right time who check off all your boxes exactly when you need it over the eight-year period? You'll be lucky if you... That's right. Yeah. You'll be lucky if you have five. And if the relationship is intimate, you're going to be pretty damn battered after the fourth one if, it, <laughs> if, it, if they shattered. Yeah. So... You don't have that many chances to find the right person in your life. And, 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 this, and this is why women are just naturally more choosy 
They, they, they have to be, yeah. they should be. Yeah, of course they should. Absolutely. Be. Yeah. Well, this goes back to what your original point too. It's, it's just sad that we don't celebrate the family unit. Anymore. Motherhood, yeah. fatherhood, yeah. Uh, you know, the discipline around it and what that means. And the, well, and the, the, the great advantages of it, like I had a great career, really. Like I got, my first academic job was at Harvard and that, that's like, that's impossible, yeah. right? That's like, that's the NBA. It was ridiculous that that happened. And so, and I went there and Harvard was just doing fine in the 1990s. It was a great place to be. So I had a stellar career and I had excellent graduate students and I was popular with my undergraduates. It was fun. And still the best part of my life was my wife and my little kids. Oh, that's great. You know, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I mean, I loved my job, but when I came home and I had my little kids around and my wife, that was just, that was just, that was just fine. More, more mm-hmm. men need to communicate that. You know, we, we talk about our kids on the show and, and family life and we get so many comments from young men. I mean, we're, we're mainly a fitness and health podcast, yeah, yeah, but yeah. we get so many comments from young men who say, God, listening to you guys makes me, I, I didn't want to have kids. Now I do. Yeah. And well, it, think about it this way. You're going to have these little kids. Eh? You're going to know them better than you knew anybody in your life. That's yeah. open to you. Yeah. Okay. Now, in these little kids, you're going to see your relatives because they're related to you. So you're going to see echoes of your father or your echoes of your mother, your sister, your brother. You have the opportunity to have with that person the best relationship with anyone you've ever had in your life. Like, and that's what that person wants more than anything else. That's what you're being offered. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why would you? Plus, little kids, if they're reasonably well-behaved, are ridiculously entertaining yeah. they're fun <laughs> yeah. yeah you know and and they're they're clowny and 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 comical and playful and they really want your attention and they want to be around you it's like you got a problem with that, Is that what's the problem you've got with that no and nobody said the, the the point i'm making is that's not communicated enough that's for sure because when you experience it like the joy you know i just recently talked about this i, I work out regularly in the morning and i just changed my schedule so i could wake up earlier Work out in the garage with my wife. We get interrupted by the little ones. Try to keep them asleep, How old are your but they kids? wake up. So I have four kids. I have an eighteen, a fourteen, and then I have a big gap. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. Right. So, so you got little, to do it twice. Yes, yeah. I did. So the little ones, you know, they often will interrupt us. We can't play the music loud in the garage. I don't have the same hardcore whatever when I'm doing my thing like I normally would. But then I get to have breakfast with the kids. Yeah. Sometimes they interrupt us. They come in and watch us, or I play with them in between sets. And then every day now, when I go off to work. Uh, you know, they greet me at the door. Yeah. The joy that I get from that is so superior to the best workouts or hitting the new weight yeah, or, yeah. you know, the, the, the focus that I used to, I would trade that, you know, any day of the week, yeah. it, but it's not communicated enough. Yeah. You know, Jordan, how yeah. would you, um, how would you characterize the type of um, parent uh, we need to be in like, say zero to four, four to eight, eight to 12. And then like, 18 and beyond like what's our what's the most important role we play because i know that it as they change almost our role changes too well there's no difference between attention and love Mm. so pay attention listen watch i would say and also pay attention to when you're happy to be around your kids and when you're not like one of the chapters in my first book was don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them it's like, take that seriously. If your kids are annoying you, go talk to your wife. Say, my, these kids are bugging me. And maybe she's going to say, well, that's because you're, you know, you're a selfish tyrant. <laughs> okay, well, sort that out because maybe that is why. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's because they're annoying. 
And so maybe your wife says, yeah, they're kind of bugging me too. It's like, okay, let's put a stop to it so that the kids are delightful to be around. And, you know, you think, well, you're, you're interfering with the flowering of your child's freedom. It's like, no, you're not. You're helping guide them down a path that makes everyone in the world want to be around them. There's nothing you can do for your child that's better. That's your job. Your job is to make your child, is to encourage your child to be maximally socially attractive. And not in the narcissistic self. Sure. That doesn't work anyways. Like in the, I'm a great teammate sort of way, right? Or I'm a great team captain. The kind of kid that everyone wants to play with and that people will listen to. The kind of kid that's honest and that helps his fellow players develop. And that's a wonderful thing to see in your son or daughter too when that starts to, to flourish. And so it's like, pay attention to your kids. Play with your kids. And then don't let them the rule of thumb is something like this don't let them do anything that brings shame to them you know we used to take our little kids to restaurants when when they were very little only for about 45 minutes because when they're under three that's about what they can tolerate but the rule was like you sit there and behave for 45 minutes you know you eat what's what's in front of you and you act like a civilized human being and the consequence of that now and then i used to have to take the kids I know I used to stand out with my daughter in the winter in Boston. She'd misbehave in the restaurant. We'd go outside. It's like, you know, 10 below. It's like, what are we doing out here, Dad? It's like, well, we're standing here until you decide whether you want to be out here in the cold or in the restaurant. It's like, take your choice. I'll stand here until Mom and Julian are done eating, or we can go in there and have a good time. Decide. She'd stand there for like a minute or two, and then she'd think, okay, we can go inside now, and then she'd behave. Okay, so the... the the disciplinary routine had to be imposed, but then we'd have a fine time, and we weren't annoyed at our kids because we got to go out now and then. And, but the upshot of that was almost inevitably at the end of meals, there would be other families come over, often older people, and co- give the kids a pat on the head and compliment them. And you think how nice that is for the kids because they go out and all they get from other people is positive feedback. Mm-hmm. And so imagine you want to set up your kids so that the way they present themselves to the world does nothing but invite positive feedback. And you do that by, certainly by letting them know when they're being annoying. It's like, you're not being funny. That's not funny. That's not amusing. That's annoying. Sort yourself out. And the kids, they demand that from you as they want to know the rules. That's why they'll desperately torture you even. They need to know the rules because they're trying to figure out how to adapt to the social world. And it's your job to, to, to encourage them to be the best at that that they can possibly be. And then you just prevent like a myriad of problems. Because once your kids, if your kids start to have good friends at four, they're set fundamentally. Wow. Because they're, they're in the social world and it just starts to expand. And then you're there as a resource, you know, and their kids can come over to your house and play and you can regulate that. We had like... Our kids came over to our house a lot when they were teenagers. My wife was very good about that because the kids used to come over when they were teenagers and they were afraid of me to begin with. But after they'd been there like four times, they were afraid of Tammy, which I thought was so funny because her attitude was very straightforward. It was like, you're really welcome here. But if you do something dumb and we never have to see you again, that's really not going to be a problem. (laughs) And then what happened was that they didn't do dumb things. You know, they did. You have to have some realm of tolerance for noise and stupidity but 
the limit the limit you put the limit you place should be your limit it's like i don't find it amusing to have these people here anymore then it's gone too far you have a right to oh, no you have a responsibility to to put down those limits and then you check it with your wife because maybe maybe you're having a bad day and you're a crabby bastard and you know you're being mean and you should find out if that's the case but maybe not maybe it's just time that the stop sign goes up this is why i thought your talk at dave ranji was so important because i think so many people underestimate that zero to four because I think parents a lot of times think, oh, they can't really articulate how they feel. They can't really communicate very much. That they don't realize what they're downloading and the foundation. Everything. The they're fa- paying attention, man. And I believe even more so. Oh, because definitely. they can't articulate, they are observing and, and they, they, you are building that child mm-hmm. that, that, right out the gates. And so the way you communicate to your spouse, the, the tone that you use yep. in the house, the whether you decide to just let things go or, or discipline. Whether or not you're watching them while they're on their own versus yeah, on your phone all yeah. that stuff and yeah. i just think we've gotten away from uh, away from how important that is and i think that we've found these these tools with ipads and tv and streaming everything that to be these babysitters and they're missing out on this unbelievably important time and i think we're seeing that manifest in these teenagers now that totally. got that so totally. scary jordan yeah. i want to respect yeah. your time I, yeah. I, one more question sure if that's okay you're you know you you People, if they just start learning about your watch, you seem very serious and, you know, uh, and how you communicate. But you seem to have this real appreciation for comedy. You see, mm-hmm. like, you, you, with comedians in particular. And mm-hmm. so you obviously have a really uh, strong sense of humor appreciation. Mm-hmm. Tell, talk about that a little bit because I've noticed, I mean, you've been on, I mean, obviously Joe Rogan and I've seen Theo Vaughn. Theo Vaughn mm-hmm. and, yeah, yeah. and you've yeah. talked yeah. about how you Jimmy like comedy. Carr. Yeah, what is it about comedy that you, that you like so much or why is it so Play. important? Okay. Well, you know, I was fortunate a lot in the town I grew up in, working class town, the the real pathway to status for boys was humor, more so than sports even. At least I would say Canada isn't as sports obsessed as the US with the possible exception of hockey, but our competition was for humor always. Mm-hmm. Like in class, we were always trying to make each other laugh when we were socializing, it was always like the guy who could make everybody laugh was at the top of the heap. And I had three friends and my, my, my junior high friends, they all dropped out of school by the time they were in about grade 10. They're a pretty funny bunch, but pretty rough humor. The guys that I, <laughs> I became friends with in, uh, in high school were from this little t- tiny place, even smaller than the town I grew up in called Bear Canyon, which had literally been settled in 1937. It was at the farthest end of the Northern Prairie. And it was a pretty isolated community, and they had just learned to amuse themselves, and they're incredibly funny. I went touring with two of them last year, and we had a blast of a time. Incredibly funny. And then the people I went to college with, it was the same thing. It was all competitive humor. Yeah. And then my friend, my kids, my, what, did my, what did Tammy say about Michaela? Oh, two years ago, she said, you know, I think everything that Michaela says is a joke. I said, yeah, Tam, that's right. Everything, everything Michaela says is a joke. And Julian was like that too. And so, and I think part of that is, is that there isn't anything more important than play. Fundamentally, I think play is the antithesis of power. I think what men can really bring into a child's life is that sense of play. That, you know, women are, are concerned with care. And fair enough, you know. But men can be concerned with play, and play is a form of care. 
It's a high form of care. And that's another thing that the young men who are listening might think about too, is you can play with your kids. Like That's fun. It's not like burdensome responsibility. If it's burdensome responsibility, you're not doing it right. You know, there's obviously, you have to pay a price to have little kids because you have to take care of them. But have to, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. You get to. Mm. You have a pet, for Christ's sake. Why do you have a pet? Because <laughs> you want to take care of something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a primal, it's a primal need. And it, it's way more entertaining than like some idiot bout of hedonistic self-satisfaction. They're not even in the same universe. It's way more, it's way is, more rewarding. Is there a connection of humor and intelligence? I find some of my smartest friends have some of the darkest humor. Is there, have they proven a connection there? Well, smarter people by and large can be funnier because they're just faster and sharper, you know? So, mm-hmm. and I think what really distinguishes comedians though is their capacity to pay attention. Mm-hmm. They're watching because you got to time, you got to time your damn joke, right? Yep. And you can say something like super mean and vicious if you say it in exactly the right tone at exactly the right time. It's like hilarious, it's, yeah, it's yeah. hilarious, <laughs> like, yeah. you know. And so that is that capacity to pay attention. I think that's why so many of them make effective podcasters. Yeah. They're yeah. very good at paying yeah. attention. Yep. And comedians also have a commitment to the truth because truth. Yep. people either laugh or they don't. It's really cut and dried. And a lot of what comedians do is tell truths that other people won't say. Yeah. Social commentary. Mm, mm, yeah, they mm. can dive they, into they a lot of those They say the subjects. unspoken. Yeah. Everyone laughs. Like, yeah, yeah. I thought that yeah. too, but I... You <laughs> get away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah, way. Yeah, you yeah. throw a little humor alongside. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So good. Well, excellent. Jordan, it's been yeah. an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank absolute you very pleasure. much for I hope we can do this invitation. another time at some point. Oh, yeah. We'll come to you. We don't care. Yeah, yeah. well, it turns out I'll probably be coming down here, you know, now and then, so... All right, good deal. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate you. Thank you. Good to meet you guys. Thank you for listening to Mind Pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB Super Bundle at mindpumpmedia.com. The RGB Super Bundle includes MAPS Anabolic, MAPS Performance, and MAPS Aesthetic. Nine months of phased expert exercise programming designed by Sal, Adam, and Justin to systematically transform the way your body looks, feels, and performs. With detailed workout blueprints and over 200 videos, the RGB Super Bundle is like having Sal, Adam, and Justin as your own personal trainers, but at a fraction of the price. The RGB Super Bundle has a full 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can get it now plus other valuable free resources at mindpumpmedia.com. If you enjoy this show, please share the love by leaving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and by introducing Mind Pump to your friends and family. We thank you for your support, and until next time, this is Mind Pump. <laughs>